Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasberry. This is Frank Pelican. And tonight's episode is episode 49. The date is October 13th, 2019. The episode topic is top five psychological horror movies. We're in the month of October now, so over the course of the, uh, the next three weeks, we'll be doing this topic tonight. Next week, we'll be having a first watch with friend of the podcast, Mike Bledsoe. We're going to be watching Halloween. Well, he'll be watching Halloween for the first time. Um, we'll be watching along with him. And then the uh, last weekend of the month, we will be doing the best five B-horror movies in 1989. And I guess also kind of going through that entire decade a little bit at that point. And reviewing what we've been doing for the past 10 months. So we're almost at the end of that concept. <clears throat> so Frank, tonight's uh, Psychological Horror, this is another one that we've had on the list for, I think, close to a year almost. Yeah, or, I mean, think. for this whole year. Uh, where, do you, where does this rank for you in terms of like a subgenre in terms of horror? Mm, pretty high. Um, I mean, I probably like supernatural horror the most. Out of any, like, if I had to, like, break down the horror genre, sub, like, subgenres into, like, my favorites, um, I tend to like, like, ghosts and witches and stuff like that. Um, but I really like, I mean, like, really well done psychological horror can be, like, even more effective than any of that. And I think that, like, the best horror, like, has those psychological elements anyway. Um, so, you know, when a movie can, a movie can, like, scare you or unnerve you or even just like be interesting and not rely on like copious amounts of blood or <clears throat> violence or you know i mean even though some of these movies have like a supernatural element you know there's always like some other mitigating factor that kind of like pushes them away from being you know supernatural or whatever but i mean there's a couple movies on this list that are among my favorite movies of all time um so i'm pretty excited to talk about it Really, it's like the reason why this list exists anyway, I think, honestly. what What's the reason? Uh, like, fucking like a couple selfish these... oh, right, you know, yeah. desire to talk about yeah. movies I like. Was there anything that came close to making this list that didn't, that you consider? <sighs> um, I'm trying to think. I did have some stuff over the past few days where I was, like, really thinking about it. Um... There's movies like, so in, in recent time, there's like, like The Witch, um, why I kind of view as more psychological horror, even though it's got supernatural elements. And I thought about putting that on there. Um, there's, I don't know, that's, so there's certain movies where it's like psychological, but it's also more of like a serial killer horror movie. And I kind of disqualified those, um. Korean movie called uh, Memories of a Murder. Really fantastic movie. Um, that I just kind of sort of disqualified out of hand just because like it is more about like a serial killer. So it's not um, like I think it moves more into that realm, even though it's not like a slasher movie necessarily. It's also like a procedural drama. Mm -hmm. Um Actually, there's a bunch of Asian movies that I thought about. Like, there's a movie called Mother that's sort of a psychological drama. But then again, it's also, like, kind of a slasher movie. And um, The Chaser, which is one of my favorite. Um, I think that's Korean. Uh, it's a horror movie from, like, a slasher horror from the mid-2000s. mid, mid -2000s. It's also 
um, really like it kind of like treads that line, but it tends to be more like action and whatever than psychological. Um, the one that almost made the list that I ended up changing after I had sent you the initial list was, um, Kayushi Kurosawa, the guy that directed a uh, pulse that we mm-hmm. talked about previously has a movie called cure. Um, right. that's a really great psychological horror movie. And that's mm-hmm. sort of, in hindsight, I probably should have taken one of these movies off and put that one on because it's just more interesting to talk about, I think. But mm-hmm. um, in terms of like overall like historical relevance and just in terms of relevance to like my life of watching films, I don't know that it's necessarily as it's not it's not as important, I don't think, to me, even though it's maybe a more interesting movie. So let me just run a couple things by you real quick in terms of movies. Um, what do you think about Misery? I loved Misery when I was a kid. Uh Um, I still think that it's two really fantastic performances and it's a really well done movie, but it's like, how to explain it? It's like broad strokes, I guess, kind of like it's less like less about the psychology of, I don't know. I mean, compare like a, like a Rembrandt, to i don't know like a saturday morning you know like comic strip like that's the mm-hmm. the difference like because kathy bates annie wilkes right that's her annie name wilkes, in the yeah. movie mm-hmm. um she's never not crazy you know like there's never any doubt that she's insane and it's just right. like it really is more of just like a I don't know even what you call it, like a kidnap horror movie or something like that. Like, even though, like, it deals with, like, the psychology of her being crazy, mm-hmm. there's never any doubt that she's the antagonist of that movie. You know what I mean? Right. So, and I think that there always has to be, like, some <clears throat> nuance to, like, the character in, like, a really great psychological horror movie. At least the way that I view it, where mm-hmm. you can, you know, sort of question like the motivations or even like question, like the reality that you're seeing, like your perception of it. And it's just not there. I mean, that's, that's not Stephen King's thing, you know, like, no, it's not. Yeah. But okay. So in that vein, let me bring up a couple more, um, that I think we'll never talk about on a podcast. So I just want to get your thoughts on What about in the mouth of madness? We've made jokes about in the mouth of madness, but I, nothing I, we haven't talked about. I it. mean, I'm not a huge fan of that movie. Right. I think it's a lot more popular I don't understand why it's popular. Yeah. I mean, it's fine. Yeah. Um, to I, I me, liked it in 1995, but I wasn't blown away either. To me, in the Mouth of Madness, there was more like, um, I don't know, like like Lovecraftian horror. Mm-hmm. It's more like the horror of the immensity of the unknown as opposed to being like really, I mean, even though it takes place in like, in and around what, like mental institutions and whatever, like it's not really psychological. It is more just about like, and I think that Barker was, like, inspired by Lovecraft, like, in the idea for, like, that movie. So. Right. Um, I have not seen this yet, but uh, you put it on a list for me, what, The Killing of a Sacred Deer? Yeah, I mean, that, that movie's, it, it's not a top five of all time. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's a good movie. Yeah. You could say the same thing about um, uh, Good Night, Mommy is very similar. And actually, almost exactly the same premise as another movie on this list that we're going to talk about. <clears throat> Movies like that, like... Killing of a Sacred Deer is a fine movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, we need to talk about Kevin. Similar. Right. Yeah. Um, 
where like they're good and they are definitely psychological horror but they're just not they don't rise to the level of like any of these five movies i don't think what about the vanishing oh man (laughs) so again like that's even though it has more nuance that that's like misery to me Hmm. um man the vanishing is really great yeah, that's tough. That may make me regret not putting the vanishing. I I I love the vanishing, like the original <clears throat> vanishing, not the Kiefer Sutherland. Right, like, fuck, fuck the Kiefer Sutherland remake. Vanishing, yeah. but um, yeah. Even so, it's the 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 psychology there comes from like the the protagonist trying to figure out what happened to his wife, mm. but. There's never any, like, I don't know. Like, I, I, I feel like you realize early on enough that she's dead that, I don't know. That's hard. Yeah. That is a really good movie. Um, here's one that seems to be really popular in, like, a cultish way uh, that I know you've seen. Uh, I, I, I think Wesley introduced it to Yeah, definitely. Um, like, 15 years ago, Session 9. Do you remember that? I, I don't think it's a very good movie. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I mean, in some cases, like it, it, <laughs> there's some funny. Well, birth, that's David Caruso, right? It gave birth to like one of the best gifts ever. The fuck you right, gift yeah. where he's like pointing at the screen. Uh, um, I think there's some generally well done shots and creepy stuff sure, that happens at it's, times. It's, it's it. filmed well. Yeah. Um, it's I don't think the psychological horror might undermine that movie a little. So bit. So I I feel like. I feel like you kind of figure it out really quick. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know that you're really surprised. So, I don't know. Like, I don't feel like I was surprised at the end of it. Um, I think you kind of just, you know that, like, he's crazy the whole time. But, I mean, it's, it's fine. I don't really think about that movie. So, right. one of the other ones, too, and the reason I didn't put it on the list, I just thought of this one. Because I didn't want to have, like, two movies from the same director as um, The Tenant. Right. Um... The last movie in Polanski's, like, apartment, quote-unquote, apartment trilogy. Um, I actually think that's, like, a really fantastic psychological horror, but it also, in the same vein as, like, Rosemary's Baby, where, like, Rosemary is, like, legitimately being tormented by, like, devil worshippers, there's a lot in The Tenant that lends credence to the fact that he's not necessarily crazy, that he's really being, like, tormented mm-hmm. by, like, outside forces, and... That's the other thing, too, is, like, a really good psychological horror movie, the horror comes from inside, like, one of the characters. Right. Like, the Joker we just saw this past weekend is a good example of, like, I think, well-done psychological horror, even though, like, I don't love that movie. Like, I still thought it was good. And it's the same thing where, like, that unreliable narrator, mm-hmm. um, where you're not sure ever if what you're seeing is legitimately happening in the real world or it's just a product of someone's, like... Sure own psychosis so yeah no i see what you're saying um a couple, S- couple hmm? session nine yeah i don't know a couple S- more what about diabolique oh diabolique's a really good choice i like diabolique a lot diabolique is a movie that i don't think about because of the terrible remake like yeah. um <laughs> the original movie is fantastic and honestly the remake is basically the same movie it's just really poorly done that's Chaz Ball and Terry, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And Sharon Stone? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. And not Maria Bello. Is it Maria Bello? No. I can't remember who it is. Some French lady. 
Um, yeah, Diabolique is good. Oh, Diabolique is great. I'm sorry, Diabolique is a fantastic movie, but Dude, is the thing too sci-fi for you to consider a psychological horror? Uh, the original one, maybe not, hmm. but I mean. It still is like body horror and like sci-fi horror. So yeah, the the um, Carpenter version is one hundred percent like. Even though there's like psychology there about like, can I trust the people that are around me? I mean, it's about like an outside force like assaulting you know, a group of people. So, uh, two more uh, funny games. I is on a lot of psychological horror lists. I do not like. Um, Michael Hankey or whatever his name is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, funny games is very uncomfortable, but it's like, it almost feels pornographic to me. Like, I feel like he's very voyeuristic in the way he films things. And I am not a huge fan of his stuff. So I don't, I, I, I mean, I don't like funny games. Okay. I had a lot of trouble watching it when I saw it. And the last one is the, the innocence. That's uh, supernatural. Yeah, you have to, you to count me. that as supernatural. Yeah. Even though, like, the way the way the innocence is filmed, like, you can question whether or not, like, there's actually, like, any kind of haunting that's happening. Yeah. It's a beautiful movie. I mean, it still is inherently, you know, a ghost. Like, ter- Turn of the Screw is a ghost story, sure. so. <clears throat> really good movie, though. I like The Innocence a lot. I have a really good... um dvd transfer of the innocence that's just beautiful although i assume that whatever you would rent on streaming or see on streaming is probably the same transfer but it was re-released by i can't remember who did that mgm or whoever columbia maybe put out a bunch of like old black and white horror and it was it's really good transfer do you, do you know when the haunting of Bly manor is supposed to be coming out <clears throat> is that next no. year i think it's next year yeah. next year yeah. i'm really excited <clears throat> for that yeah. Okay, you ready to go ahead and get started? Yep. All right, so number five on your list is 2003's A Tale of Two Sisters. Uh, it is directed by Jim Ji Woon uh, and is starring Lim Soo Young and Jenga Yoon. It is 85% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 83% from audiences. Want to tell us a little bit about the movie and what you liked about it so much? Um, so it's based on a uh, Korean like folktale um basically there's a young young girl who spent like some period of time in a psychiatric hospital comes home um to find that her father is um married and living with a stepmother um she's reunited with her sister who she's very protective of um over the course of like the days that she's there um has a strained relationship with the stepmother where it's implied that like the stepmother is kind of abusive towards the um, other sister. Uh, I'm trying to think. So the one sister, the sister that was in mental institution is Sumi. And then Yun is the other sister. Um, there's one of the first nights that she's home, um, sees the apparition of her mother with a broken neck, like kind of like crawling towards her or hovering towards her bed. And then like, and it's pretty, really well done. Um, there's also another thing where her uncle and aunt come to visit and the aunt has a seizure because she sees like the ghost of a dead girl, like hiding, like under the sink or whatever. 
Um, so there's this element like early on that you feel like there is like a haunting that's taking place. Um, a lot of like images of like ghostly figures, like in backgrounds and, um, you find out that, um, Suyin or I'm going to, the, the, the older sister, the one, the psychologically damaged one, um, blames, Man, I wish I could remember their names. Blames the stepmother for... The stepmother was the live-in maid for their nat, their birth mother <clears throat> who suffered from some malady. And then they think that the birth that the stepmother killed the birth mother, basically, to marry her, their father. <clears throat> um, it eventually... I'm trying to think, like... It's hard to summarize because there's a period in the movie, like, about two-thirds of the way in where like there's a lot of information given to you yes um in essence what happened was um the stepmother was the live-in maid but um the stepmother and the sister are both manifestations of suyin's mind like she has dissociative disorder i think is what they say it is um and that none of those things are happening that she's basically just been living like with her father alone um and the reason that it happened was um, the real stepmother who was really the live-in nurse, um, the mother had, the father had decided to marry her because the mother was on her deathbed. And so the mother hung herself in like a wardrobe. Um, and <clears throat> the stepmother, <clears throat> the younger sister discovered it and the wardrobe fell on her and the stepmother could have rescued her, but didn't. And then basically left her to die. Um, which is in the end, like there is like that supernatural thing, like where the, the ghost gets the revenge on the stepmother. Um, but it does a really good job of keeping you number one unsettled just with the way things are filmed. Like it's very, um, the colors and just like the, the camera angles and the way that like he inserts, um, elements of like the supernatural into it. Um, you're never sure until like you actually like it's all revealed to you like what you're seeing right um and there is enough you know that you you do feel like maybe you are seeing like a supernatural horror thriller or you know horror whatever um and then when it's revealed like a lot of stuff makes perfect sense especially sure. the um reactions of the father uh to certain things that happens with his daughter mm-hmm. um really sad that you know the um you know, the, the, the death of the younger sister and the fact that she, like, kind of is invented her because she can't come to grips with the fact that um, she kind of blames herself for the sister's death because she doesn't know that the stepmother was sort of responsible. Um, but just really, really well shot, really well acted. Um, it's got a fantastic score. Um, it's a beautiful movie. Like, it takes place in the Korean countryside and, like, the house is isolated, so... Some really great scenes, like where they go down to the pier and they're like laying on the like on the pier in the next to the water, and just the way they shoot it is is really well done. Yeah. Um, the 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 score is what you would one of the pieces of the score is what you would have heard when you first heard this episode because I love that score in that movie. I uh, a lot of Korean movies that I've watched you know in the past twenty years and that usually you tell me to watch. I find have really incredible scores and uh, like you said, all fair at some point that uh, 
Yeah, like, I guess, like, being classically trained, like, they yeah. just have a lot of really good classical scores to movies and stuff like that. So I thought that was really good. You just mentioned the setting. I think the setting really adds to this a sense of kind of, like, reminds me of almost, like, the English countryside type setting. Sure. Like, with the fog and that kind of stuff. And um, just that, that, but that sense of isolation really, I think, enhances and increases, yeah. like, the um, psychological horror nature of this. Well, because it definitely has the feeling of, like, an old Dark House movie. Where right. it's, like, um, it, it, it feels like a haunted house movie for the first, I don't know, like, 50 minutes of it until you really realize, like, Maybe even longer than that, like maybe like 60, 70 minutes when you realize like what's actually happening. Uh, and, and in between all that stuff with the potential haunting and everything, I think he does a really good, the, the, the writing of this is very good, but it, it has to be the writing in conjunction with the way it's directed to really make it work. And it does work, uh, but it's what happens in between those hauntings is so stilted at a lot of times in terms of the conversations between people and awkward and the director allows the writing, like the right, the writing's fine, but the director allows the actors to pause, and there's large gaps between them speaking to one another sometimes, right. and it, it creates a sense of tension and mystery at times or awkwardness, and it, that in itself too, I think, really is what makes the movie work in like so that you're not just right. focused on the horror scenes like right. it's actually building that mystery through but it still is unsettling as you're watching it. it 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 does a very difficult thing and it actually like that the sixth sense tries to do and i think it does it a little more subtly in the sense that when you see this movie like subsequently and you start to realize like you know like what the twist is you see like where they're where he's leaving in places where she's having the conversations in her head mm-hmm and like the conversation is not actually happening. Um, this movie was directly remade um, in America. A movie called The Uninvited got Elizabeth Banks in it, mm-hmm. um, which is actually a pretty, really fantastic and like faith, like faithful enough remake where you can like you know that it's a remake, but it changes enough where it still is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I mentioned it earlier that Goodnight Mommy movie is like very similar. Mm. um in terms of it's like basically the same idea almost um with like some slight differences that again like really good job with leaving these gaps where you don't know whether or not what you're seeing is actually happening or whether it's in like the character's head but and i think the two um principal actresses the two girls do a really good job you mean the daughters (laughs) the daughters yeah i i actually really like um uh, it's uh the Yoon Joo, yeah. like the the stepmother in it. Um, that's um. Uh, Jenga Yoon um is the actress's name. I really like her in this a lot. Like she, uh, I think she does a really good job in both roles. I, but you don't get to see her like that much. I think you know after you find out what's really going on right. I think is that in that role of being kind of menacing and mean and evil right like but the... also putting on a nice face like I think she does those transitions very well and sometimes I can find Korean some Korean acting very stilted mm. and that that's probably just a cultural thing that I, I don't maybe like see the nuance sometimes of it but I felt like it was a very 
realistic and natural performance yeah. to me like and maybe it's like that's just because of my american sensibilities but it seemed like a very american performance um and i like the dad in it too yeah he, a lot. he's really good it, it, it's a really sad role yeah um because he just wants what's best for her and he's just trying to like take care of his daughter yeah um and then you realize like later at the end like when it's revealed what's going on that like he really was just trying to be patient and yeah. like do the right thing yeah she um the the you 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 jun or whatever um the stepmother character does a really good job of being like that menacing like wicked stepmother without being a caricature of it mm-hmm. and it, it is a really good performance i mean yeah. it's a like i really like I, I i bought this movie on dvd without knowing anything about it it was just one of those like when we used to go we used to go to best buy and borders on monday um and I would just buy like tons of DVDs because this is before streaming really or anything. <clears throat> and this was like a blind buy that I was completely like blown away by when I first saw it. So, yeah, I don't think I had seen it until now. It's surprising that I never made you watch. Oh, it. I think I think you tried back then. I think I was like, uh, when was the when was the time period of like the Ring, like all the Jap the the J Har or whatever that was coming out? Like, what year was that? This is a little after that. That's a little after that. I think I was probably burnt out on like all like the J Har. Yeah. And I just avoided watching this, but, um, no, it's good. I think it's a little long. And I think especially that sequence with the reveal, like that whole, right. It's basically the last 30 minutes of the movie almost is like slowly just revealing everything. And it's like, once it's revealed, it's revealed. And I mean, it's still, it's set up properly. You reveal the mental illness and then the mystery then becomes, well, what really happened? Right. And so it's set up logically, but I just think that whole sequence is maybe a little bit drawn out. Yeah. And trying to make it seem more uh, more shocking than it actually is. That yeah. would be my one complaint about the movie, probably, is they draw that out a little bit. <clears throat> Too long. Yeah, I mean, so definitely worth watching. Um it's available to watch on Shutter if you subscribe to Shutter through Prime, but not on Shutter if you subscribe to Shutter through Shutter. Yeah, it's just like a public service announcement, uh, especially since we have a lot of new listeners that have been downloading episodes recently, which um, we appreciate it. Like, we hope if you're this is the first time you're listening to like a new episode, um, thank you, and uh, we'll um, hope you keep coming back. But yeah, just as a public service announcement, we've realized this week that. And I don't think this is a Shutter-only thing. This is, I think, a lot of apps that are on Amazon Prime. We discovered that it looks like those, if you subscribe through Amazon, there are some movies that are exclusive if you're using that app through Amazon. And the actual app outside of Amazon that you can get through a smart TV or, you know, a portable device... um, does not have those movies on it, some of them. So we found this out with a tale of two sisters where, so like Frank, um, can watch it through prime on right. shutter. But if I try to go on shutter and watch it through shutter, like the app itself, the direct app, it's not on there, which is very bizarre. Um, I mean, I guess it makes business sense, but so you might want to just be careful about knowing those things. If you're subscribing, um, like where you subscribe to, yeah. Or just didn't do you what say I do that there's limited? Didn't you say though that you think there's like limitations of things that aren't on Prime through apps that you found? So Shutter definitely has stuff on its. If you just subscribe to Shutter, that do not exist on the Prime version. Right. Of yeah. The the Prime version of Shutter has like maybe, I don't know, hundred 
plus movies like mm-hmm. around there whereas like shutter as a service has like several hundred movies that are available so yeah that's it's really bizarre like i i th- th- that kind of difference i i could see if it was a few excuses exclusives but that big of a difference is uh problematic to me um yeah just subscribe to everything it's fine right well right they, you know you had that admission this week that <clears throat> you subscribed to both shutters <laughs> the one on prime and the <laughs> I gotta, I gotta, I gotta see, I gotta see my movies. money bags, Frank. <laughs> Whatever, it's like three dollars. <laughs> I think it's like six ninety nine for both or something. Uh, combined, like a total, like our uh, both separately. Here's <clears throat> what things cost. Yeah. So Jonathan Rosenbaum, a Chicago reader, uh, he's who took over for uh, uh, Dan Kirk. Kerr. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> so. He says, in theory, it's an ambiguous ghost story, like the turn of the screw, that delivery obscures the distinction between the supernatural and the imaginary. But in practice, the awkward storytelling is body exposition reduces to a string of rude shocks. Not even the eventual denouement provides a lucid enough account of where this is all coming from. It's roughly three parts Brian De Palma and one part Val Luden. I would have preferred the reverse. <clears throat> For people that don't know, Val Luton is the old uh, horror director that... Uh, cat people. Cat people, right. You know, like, oh, what is it? I Walk With a Zombie and all that kind of stuff. It's actually a Val Luton retrospective on the Criterion channel right now that's really good. Oh, nice. And, like, a, a, a few of his uh, classic movies. Right. Um, I don't know. Whatever. Like, I don't agree with that. I mean, honestly, like, I think the De Palma Luton... I don't know if that's a really good... Like, analogy. I don't know. Um, I think that the movie, like, does a decent job of letting you know, like, what was real and what wasn't. Um, yeah. Do, do you think that De Palma... Because, I, I don't know. Maybe this is me. I see De Palma's name come up, and I usually think it's a slur. Um, not to say that Brian Palma doesn't have good movies, because he does. But he needs to be... I don't know. There's some, he needs to be kept in check, probably, is yeah. my guess. So... Do, do, but I take it as a slur here that it's like it's too gratuitous or shock heavy. I think is like I think that's the that's what's going on here, and he would have much rather sure. seen something much more, uh, const, you know, right, restrained uh, and restrained, classical. Yeah. Yes. Um, so do you, I'll take that as the main thing that I'll ask you about is like, do you think there's too much shock in here? No, I mean I think that's uh, just a matter of taste. I, sure. I think that it's. I think that it's using tropes that were popular at the time. So, ghost children, ghost women, um, things appearing and disappearing and then reappearing again. Uh, just in order to, like, draw in an audience. Like, because that's what was popular when this movie came out. Mm-hmm. And then layers, like, a deeper... Because the the original folktale that it's based on is, is 100% supernatural. Like, it's about... Like, the ghosts of these two, like, girls that are wrongfully killed by, through the machinations of, like, an evil stepmother. Mm -hmm. Like, basically, like, eventually getting their revenge on the stepmother and her family. um, For, like, clouding their father's love against them, basically. Um, So, taking that and actually making it about disassociative disorder, I think is... Like, it was... The first time you see it, I think it's pretty... Pretty shocking, like, when you realize what's happened. Um... I don't know that I, like, a lot of times I feel like in those movies I, I can kind of see that that's coming, and I don't know that I saw it the first time I saw this, and it's been, 
whatever, 14, 15 years since I've seen this movie for the first time, but, um, I don't know. Like, I, I don't think it's, like, overly gratuitous, honestly. Yeah. Definitely I, not in, like, a De Palma vein. No, I, I, I agree. I, I don't see that. I mean, I, I, I can... I see the idea that he wants to be more Val Luton, but I, but I, I can see a little bit of that, but I don't see that it's like. As... So of all the people you pick, Val Luton is not the person to pick. And <laughs> who's the person to pick? I don't know, but it's not him. Um, <laughs> shit, I don't know. Like, say that it's. I don't. Know, it's 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 not fucking Val Luton. Okay. That's that that's that's a sentence written by somebody who doesn't know anything about horror and those are just the two names that come to his mind. And De Palma is not really about the supernatural at all. De Palma is about like psychosexual and I don't know, like eh. he's all about like psychological. I, I think he understands what he's saying and for the De Palma thing at least. I like I I th- I, I I just don't think he's right, but I I, I think he I, I think he thinks that's true. What he's saying. I don't like Rosenbaum as a reviewer. I think he's a pretentious dick. But I uh, but at the same time, it's like I, I think I think he probably knows why he's saying that. But I just don't agree with him and don't see it the way he does. Um. Yeah, I really can't think of a good like say like three parts Wes Craven, one part I don't know. Like. Hitchcock or Polanski maybe or something see I see this much more in like a kind of a more Hitchcock is the way I see it but it's like with um I don't want to get into that too quickly but it's like Hitchcock and Mikay okay I'm fine with that like maybe like uh who who did all who was the guy that did all like the we've talked about on the podcast before like uh what are some of the J horror movies? I always forget all their names. Like, what's the one that we Pulse? Who did Pulse? Oh, that's Kyushi Kurosawa. Kurosawa, right? Like almost like something like that. Yeah. Like mixed with like a Hitchcock or something like that. Oh. I don't know. Um. Yeah. I. I don't know. I think I think it is very classically done. I I don't, I don't right. I agree with that. Yeah. Um. Did you used to have nightmares about like that? fairy tale this is based off of or whatever maybe like two sisters like no that's not me no okay mine's the faceless woman crawling in my window that's my nightmare we'll talk about later okay um any final thoughts on this no again like i think it really holds up um just a really well done movie and like if you have the ability to watch it and I, i think it's definitely worth watching so, number four on your list, going back to 1962, movie Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, directed by Robert Aldrich, starring Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, Victor Bono. Bono. I think it's like good. Yeah. And then um, Maddie Norman. It has a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 92% from audiences. Mm. And tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it. Uh, so, it follows two sisters, the Hudson sisters, Blanche and Jane. Um, in their youth, uh, Jane was a popular vaudeville-style performer um, in the vein of, like, a Shirley Temple, maybe, um, who had dolls made of her, who made a lot of money for her parents, um, but was, a to- like, a, a terrible, like, kid, like, just an asshole to everybody, and um, 
Blanche, who's the older sister, um, was kind of like ignored by her parents. Although there's like the first scene of the movie is the mother telling Blanche, like, you know, just be nice to your father and sister who are kind of abusive to her now. Um, just learn to forgive them because like eventually you'll be the one where the spotlight's on. So cut to like, what is it like 20 years in the future where Blanche is basically like the most popular actress on the planet with like a string of like hit films and Jane has kind of faded into obscurity, but still gets roles because Blanche kind of forces the studio to put Jane in roles, even though she's terrible. Um, there's a scene that ends like, I guess like the first quarter of the movie. Um, where there's an accident where it's implied that one of the sisters purposefully ran over the other one as they were going into the house, but it doesn't like show you like what actually happens. It shows, um, all the characters, like just from the shoulders down basically. Um, so then it cuts to what, like 20 more years into the future, 20 some years, um, where Blanche and Jane are both now like elderly, um, Blanche is paralyzed from the waist down confined to a wheelchair in a house that doesn't have an elevator or like stairs that she can get down. Um, and Jane is her caretaker. Uh, Jane is an abusive alcoholic, um, who still kind of lives on the idea that she should have been the one to gain all the fame and fortune. Um, <clears throat> she, it's actually a really interesting, like one of the more interesting parts of this story or this movie and it's kind of small, but it's the idea that, like, television, like, the advent of television and, like, the spread of TV, like, throughout, you know, like, the co- like common America has caused these aging stars to gain, like, a new life, basically. And Blanche is becoming popular again because her movies are shown on television. This, like, incenses Jane, who, like, increasingly, like, treats Blanche, like, poorly, um, kills her bird, serves her a dead rat. Um... Jane is, um, what's like embezzling Blanche's money, um, and has this idea that she's going to revive her career, her singing career, um, hires a guy to be her accompanist who like realizes immediately that she's terrible, but still like eggs are on, I guess, like to get her money. Um, eventually, uh, Jane turns murderous, um, murders their maid who discovers that Jane has Blanche tied up and is starving her in the inner room. Um, finds the police are coming, the kidnaps Blanche, basically reverts to her childhood baby Jane persona. Um, and you find out that Blanche is the one that ran Jane over because Jane had been making fun of her at a party. And she was so angry at her that that was, like, her revenge for, like, all the years of Jane just being a horrible person. But convinced Jane that it was the other way around so that Jane would, like, take care of her forever. Um, and then the end of the movie, it's you're left kind of, like, uncertain as whether or not Blanche survives or not. Um, as, like, the police come to get Jane off the beach. Um, beautifully filmed movie. Like, I love um, the like the use it's black and white but just like the use of shadow um the way they make that house feel like really oppressive and prison like um the way the outside world is so bright and open and like you really feel terrible for blanche that like she's trying to get help and she can't because like it's so close like it's like just a window pane away and she just can't like you know jane is like defeating her at every turn basically 
Um, I saw this movie at a really young age and was terrified by Betty Davis as Baby Jane. Um, one of like the the contortions of her face and the way they make her up and just like this horrible like m- like mask like caricature of like I don't know like it was really upsetting to me as a kid. Um, especially the scene where she kills the maid with the hammer is like, like in my head, I watching it again, like it's not as terrible as I remember it, but man, like that, that scene like was really rough for me to watch as like a young child. Um, I think it's maybe like a tiny bit too long cause it's what, like two hours and 15 minutes long or something like that. Two hours and five, I think. Um, maybe you trim some of that stuff out, but two fantastic performances from like two of you know the most popular actresses from like the golden age of film that in reality like in real life had kind of like come to like the like decline of their careers they were almost like forgotten and this movie really like propelled them back to the spotlight um hugely controversial at the time of release just because of the subject matter and how really like overt it was in talking about like what was happening um in terms of you know elder abuse and psychological trauma and um you know jane kind of like that sunset boulevard there's another good one too that could be like on the psychological horror list Mm -hmm. um inability to like let go of like her past success and realize that she had peaked at a certain point i mean there's that scene early on where um blanche is talking about how nice it is that like people are appreciating her work again and jane's like well I made like the best movie of my career and you made it so they wouldn't even release it. And it's just, I don't know. I love the performances in it. Like I love the way it looks and I think it's, I, don't know, I think it's really well done. Um, so yeah, my, my mother, uh, this is something that she's talked about like my entire life. Um, I saw this at a fairly young age too, I guess. And it's been that long since I've seen it, but my mother was uh, terrified of this movie and my, I'm assuming she saw it probably not long after it's released, like probably a couple of years or so, something like that. Um, uh, so she would have been pretty young when she saw it and it's like terrified her ever since, like, uh, particularly the Betty Davis Jane character. And, <clears throat> Uh, my my mother's also, even though that's much later in her life, um, well, not that much later, but uh, she was also extremely, she found a mommy deer. Stuff, oh, so, you know what? Like, I was going to make that point. Like, I, yeah. I, I don't know if, like, for some reason, maybe we had the same experience. Like, I'm almost positive that this movie was shown in conjunction with Mommy Dearest on television at one point. Because I saw Mommy Dearest, too, like, at a really young age, sure. and it really bothered me. Right. And those who don't know, Mommy <clears throat> Dearest is based off of Joan Crawford, who plays Blanche in this. It is based off of her adopted daughter, who wrote a biography um, about, an autobiography about her experience living with Joan Crawford, who basically is almost like the Jane character right. in this movie. And, um, yeah, Mommy Dearest is a good movie. I mean... It is. It's um, a little, like modeling i guess or whatever yeah yeah but um is that who is that that's in that i don't remember i can't remember now um but yeah the person plays crawford in that movie is really good and but uh so i'm i've heard about this movie all my life but uh rewatching it again now uh in 2019 i it's good i mean like you said like i i think the camera works really well done throughout Mm -hmm. like i mean i think they 
like you said, for just being these kind of sets, I think they do a really good job of making it feel like she's upstairs, that she's trapped. And a lot of that is framing and mise-en-scene and, you know, those kind of tricks that they use to really make you feel, and shadowing, you know, like lighting, right. but it's like to really make her feel isolated and, um, and that contrast with the outdoors, like you talked about, is really good. I, I mean, I agree with all that, and I think the filmmaking and the direction and the cinematography is really well handled. Um, the acting is good. Like, I, I think that she still holds up as Jane. I think that Crawford is Blanche. Um, it's fine. Um, I, I don't see anything particularly special about that performance whatsoever. Mm. Um, which is funny because Bosley Crowther, like New York Times, um, trashes Crawford's performances. Um, saying that like there's really nothing significant about her playing that character and that other than the fact that she's in a wheelchair and is being tortured um that's like the only thing that garners sympathy it's not anything about a performance necessarily that garners sympathy um it's only the circumstance so so here's my take on her performance in this movie Mm -hmm. i feel like the blanche the character is still performing in everything that she does Mm. I don't think that it's gen. I don't think that, that you, she's no different than Jane in some right. Way, I don't think you're getting anything genuine out of that character. I think that like she's just playing this refined, well spoken. Oh, isn't that lovely? You know what I mean? Like it's it's very. It's a stilted performance, but I think it's stilted on purpose. Or at least that's the way I take it. That right. she's, yeah, exactly. Like in the way that Jane is like descended into alcoholism and insanity basically like Mm -hmm. she's just as crazy i mean she tried to murder her sister for like sure and insulted a cocktail party you know like so she's just as nuts yeah i so uh, i mean since you bring that up i'll just get into the other main point that crother makes which is um he calls that the revelation at the end he calls it synthetic and a contrivance uh and thought that it didn't really feel correct like as an ending to that movie how do you like i mean obviously i I, i've seen this movie maybe three or four times so i knew you know like watching it this time like what was what what the end result of it is yeah but how do you not just like guess you know what i mean like i even felt like maybe not as like a seven or eight year old kid whenever i saw this movie for the first time but like i watched this movie the time i really remember watching it like in full is like in my late teens and like i you know yeah because there's too many references throughout the movie to that they bring up the car accident a couple times and it's like they wouldn't keep bringing it up if it's not going to come up and the only twist that's available is that it's branch so you know and i and i think but i think that's what he's saying is like you know uh, to some degree like that the whole thing feels like this contrivance like uh, a plot twist that's not really a good plot twist and it's just there and i do think it's one of the weaker elements of this movie honestly because it's almost so it's like I, I my my problem with this it's a good movie it's fine like you know I but I just feel watching it now like I love old, like older movies from the 40s and stuff like that and so I don't have a problem with black and white I, I think you know, I can find those movies really interesting all of them like and I just feel like this maybe is this genre or subgenre particularly or something I feel like, man, we're way past what this movie was doing. So at sure. the time, I get it. Like, you know, and, but it's like, basically, it's like, once that dead rat happens, like, 
it's like, okay, let me just like paint by numbers, fill in the next like hour of this movie every 10 minutes. Like this, this fucked up thing is going to happen. This, right. and it's just, and you can fill in the gaps. Like, you know, it's just, so maybe it creates kind of like a pattern for these movies. Right. But, it, 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 it created that. that right. Point. Yeah. And it's like, but it's like now the pattern is so, we've gone so far past the pattern that it's like, it's hard to go back to this to some degree. I mean, uh, that could be. It's sure. like I'm saying it's like I can go back and watch some old film noir that I never seen and still find things like oh that's really cool like you know it's like that's that's really interesting and the, people are still doing things that are interesting even all these years later where I find I go back in this and maybe again it's the genre and how much has been pumped out and produced uh, of horror movies it, to the point where it's like, this doesn't feel as quite as interesting well, to me. So it, it's not only that, but like, remember that number one, you're, you're dealing with, um, someone who's like suffering from like genuine psychosis mm-hmm. and who has lost like a, she's like a, a, a dipsomaniac and she's lost like her grasp on reality. They can't, no, they, they didn't have, like, the words to describe those things. They didn't have the knowledge. And they also didn't have the ability to, like, do as much as they wanted to. Like, in film noir, I mean, to your point, you know, you're not held back by much other than, like, graphically showing, like, violence or nudity for the majority of, like, the great, like, noir of, like, the 40s and 50s. Yeah, and just word choice and stuff like right. that. Right, it's like, like you're only limited censored. by, like, how good the writer was and how good your actors were, basically. Sure. But in this... They were really pushing the envelope. I mean, this movie was, I think, banned in Britain mm-hmm. for a period of time because it was so upsetting to people. Like this idea yeah. that these that you could like show this and talk about this stuff. Yeah, and and the and the contemporary reviews I read of this, you can see that coming through. Even if people were trying to act cool about it, they weren't cool with some of the stuff. Like I could I could see it in the adjectives they used yeah. and to describe things that they were a little bit like turned off by like the things like the dead bird and like you know all that kind of shit right so and it's kind of ham-fisted in the way it deals with like the explanation for the why sure but again like it's not a modern telling yeah with like our sensibilities and understanding not that like we even come close to understanding like the human psyche or whatever but we definitely i think have a more but certainly, that's and that's what I, I think. That's part of my point is what I'm saying is I think we have a much better understanding of all that right. stuff now. And like I said, we've just moved past this, and so it feels more dated than it should possibly. Be. Maybe so, I mean I still feel like it's really important, and I still feel yeah. like it's a really like well it's, done. It's, film, it's, so. fine, it's fine movie. I like it. It's, I don't dislike yeah. it. It's just I, I do think it's long because of that. Now, like if it was shorter, and they you cut out some of that middle. Right. I think I wouldn't be nearly as uh, vocal about... I mean, to your point, this issue. is the movie I would have replaced on this list. Right. So... Sure. Yeah. And honestly, like... On the but way I also here, think it's telling... We'll talk about it later. Never mind. On the way over here, I was thinking that I should have even flipped this in Tale of Two Sisters, because yeah. I think Tale of Two Sisters is, like, from the modern mindset, a better movie yeah. than whatever happened to Baby Jane. Yeah. But no, this movie's important, and I, I do want to bring up one more point about this, but we'll do it later. Um, I'll, I'll write it down and okay. talk about it. Um, <clears throat> all right, do you have anything else to say about this movie? No. I mean, usually we end these segments with me saying something about, like, you should watch this if... Um, right. I think this is a, a tough movie to watch now. 
if you've never seen it before, just because to your point, it is a little long and it does kind of feel antiquated. But if you care about film history and, you know, like you want to see Absolutely. like the, the origins of the stuff, like it's definitely worth watching. Absolutely. Uh, for that reason, for that reason alone, it's, it's, it's worth. Watching. And it's beautifully shot. Like I, yeah. I, I love like a lot of shots in this movie. Sure. Hmm. There's some really good stuff in here. Yeah. Uh, um, okay. So number three on our list. This is a movie that Frank and I have argued about for what, probably seventeen years, eighteen years, probably. I mean, it's it came out in nineteen ninety nine, and we I probably saw a couple years after that. So, um, so yeah, we we've argued about this movie for a long time, and I'm still convinced anymore that you like take it much more seriously than I do, <laughs> in the sense of. Um, you think I hate this movie when I don't hate this movie. It's that we just disagree on the last 30 minutes of this movie. And I like it a lot less than you do. But right. I still don't... I don't hate it. I just think that it's mishandled. Maybe it's because I love it so much. Right, and you right, and you love it. I think that's the... Yeah. You, you think I'm being more hateful than I am about this. But um, One of my favorite movies of the last 20 years. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, so... This movie is Audition, directed by Takashi Miike. Uh, it stars uh, Ryo Ishibashi, uh, Ai Shima, and uh, Tetsu Sawaki. And uh, it has an 81% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 80%. It's interesting how close all these. 80% from audiences. All these are very close to the critic scores, the audience scores on these movies. Um, you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about this movie and what you love about it so much? Um, so plot follows, uh, an executive whose wife has passed away. Um, and he's left with his young son, um, cuts through like several years where the son is growing up and he's trying to be a good and dutiful father. But you know, the son is now like in the con the, like the, brunt of the movie the son is you know getting ready to go to college he's an, almost an adult and the father's starting to feel like he wants to meet someone and get married again and the son supports it so the father is friends with um a movie producer and they concoct this scheme that they're going to host an audition to fill a role in a movie that the producer is actually filming <clears throat> but the father is going to find like a second or third choice actress that he can fall in love with and woo and marry through this audition process. And this way he'll be able to like get like these women to come and talk and he'll get to meet them and kind of vet them beforehand and then sort of narrow it down and find one to marry. Um, so they go through the process and early on when he's flipping through, he's immediately attracted to this one woman's profile. Um, who's very, very Japanese in the way it's presented. Like she's, had some setbacks, but she's tough and she's going to get through it. And, you know, even if she doesn't like succeed, that's life. And she still tried her best. It's, it's all very, I mean, that's very Japanese, like that whole mindset. Um, so he woos the woman, they go on several dates. Um, he eventually like very, very quickly decides that this is the woman he wants to marry, that he's in love with her. Um, that's intercut with some things where, um, just still scenes of like her sitting alone in a room, like staring at the phone. So you get kind of like the feeling that maybe there's something unsettled about her. 
Um, the producer like immediately calls out the fact that like they can't get a hold of any of her contacts. They don't have any information on her beyond what she's given them. Um, he eventually takes her to uh, the seashore for like a romantic getaway where he's going to propose to her. Um, this is where she disrobes for him for the first time and he sees that she has scars on her body. Um, after they have sex for the first time, she disappears and he can't find her. Um, so he starts to try and investigate her and finds out that all these people that she was associated with are either dead or disfigured or missing in some way. Um, and so culminates in her <laughs> breaking into his house, um, paralyzing him, uh, putting needles deep into his like skin and eyes, and then sawing off his feet before his son comes home and basically like kills her by kicking her down the stairs. Um, intercut within that though, like while he's getting his feet sawn off, um, it cuts to like sort of a fantasy where he woke up the next morning and she was still there. Um, and that like things weren't like as terrible. Um, you find out that she was abused by, I guess it was her uncle in the story or like stepfather, stepfather, stepfather. um, sexually abused. Um, and that she murdered him as a result. Um, and that she is, she kills people because she needs to be the only object of their affection. And anytime they show affection for anyone else, like it, like basically pushes her into a murderous rage. Um, which is allegorical, I think to like the, (sighs) a lot of the Japanese movies where women are, um, just damsels in distress that men can kind of do whatever they want with. Like a lot of them, the man is this kind of cad sort of, but like with a heart of gold that sort of rescues the waif from some profession. That's like, you know, like she's a shop girl or she's a, I don't know, like a cigarette girl or, and that, that happens a lot in like the movies of like a lot of Japanese movies, like the sixties or seventies. Um, and you know, Mike is kind of, turning that on its head where it's like the majority of this movie is a very, I don't want to say bland, but it's a very controlled typical family drama really. And with some small things like, so you find out that the father had sex with his secretary and got her pregnant and forced her to have an abortion basically. And then like never talked to her again about it. Um, even though like she feels like kind of like a soiled woman because of it. Um, so even though like he's portrayed through most of the movie as like this really great upstanding guy that just wants the best, like he's not really the best either. And like, you know, they're kind of manipulating women, not not even kind of like they're manipulating women through the pretense of a job in order for him to fuck somebody. Like, so he's not a very good guy. And even though the reaction is extreme, it's like, is it really, you know, doesn't he kind of, isn't he kind of just getting what he deserves for, you know, his behavior and sort of like as a proxy for just how terrible men like treat women in Japan. So. Yeah. And that's certainly that, that reading of it is certainly that kind of read like, uh, what do you want to call it? Like there's an American reading of that, that she's like a feminist revenge icon. And I'm not sure if I necessarily completely go along with that. I, I think it's more nuanced than, right. than that. But I really think it's a look at, it's a true look at trauma 
it's a true look at trauma creating people that do these things and it just so happens that she's a female in this so I, I don't think it's doing anything different than anything else like i think it's just because she's a female i agree that that matters in terms of like the movie but i don't think it's about i don't think it's a positive thing no no it's not positive like no but that's how a lot of american critics read it is that it's this positive no, 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 icon no. almost that giving, giving the man what he deserves and stuff like that and i don't think that's what this movie's doing i mean it's 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 more What's the word I'm looking for? It's more um, more abstract than that concept. Like, yeah. it's not a revenge fantasy. So, I Spit on Your Grave is a revenge fantasy mm-hmm. movie that a lot of people, like, especially from, like, a feminist perspective, have glommed onto that, like, this is, the, like, the day of the woman thing. That it's, sure. you know, women getting their revenge for, like, years of mistreatment at the hands of men. Right. This is not that. This is more a look at, like... It's Mike skewering, like, basically Japanese culture right. and the idea that, you know, like, women should be subservient and women should, like, it's about, you know, like, keeping that, I don't want to use this, like, I hate this term, but, like, that stiff upper lip, like, you know, you have to, like, um, you know, you're going to stand strong. And that's, like, I mean, I've watched so many Japanese movies where that's the thing is, like, the woman has all these hardships come up but she stands there like firm with her hands at her side like i love you and i'm going to be strong for you and Mm -hmm. no matter what terrible thing like the man has done you know she's willing to like be there for him and subjugate herself and this is about the guy that thinks that that's how things should be and has obviously taken advantage of women in the past yeah like because the secretary stuff you know, you don't really, and it is also implied that, like, he's kind of teaching his son the same thing, and he kind of knows it, because at the end, when he's going through, like, the fever dream sequence, um, you know, he dreams about, uh, what's, what's, what's her name in the movie? Um, I, I can't remember. The character, the main female character? I'm not sure, I can't remember, I'll, I'll look it up here while you're talking. Um, Ioma's the guy, Asami. So, Asami, yeah. How do damn why? How did I not remember right. that? Like, so you know, he first envisions Asami like giving him a blowjob, and then it turns into his secretary, who's like, "Why did you never call me?" Because he, you know, he obviously feels guilty about it, but not guilty enough to ever like address it to her or do the right thing. And then it's all of a sudden his son's girlfriend, mm-hmm. because he's sort of pushing his son in that direction, like you know. The son is using his knowledge of fucking dinosaurs to, like, get this girl to come over so he can, like, flirt with her and mm-hmm. kind of take advantage, which is the same thing that he's doing. It's using, like, his knowledge and his power to get what he wants. And... Sure. I mean, right. And all that speaks to the theme of, like, you know, like, the hereditary trauma of, like, being... Of, of the stepfather passing it on to her, like, the violence and all that kind of stuff. Right. And the father is also passing along the very things that... You know, to his son, just like somebody passed that along to that stepfather, you know, and it's just really kind of speaking to that cycle of of, uh, of violence, whether it's physical or sexual, you yeah. know, and that's. And the funny thing is, too, is at the end of this movie, so um, the son comes home, uh, stops Asami from like basically mutilating Ioma, like in the, in like, like, I guess, like media res or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then she's chasing him up the stairs and he kicks her and she falls down and breaks her neck. And as she's laying there with her neck broken, 
Um, she should be dead, you know, but she's still talking and she reverts back to the small, I'm just a young girl with a dream. I just want to be loved. I just want you to love me. Um, and it, it like in a lot of ways, like I look at it as like a condemnation of, you know, like that, that cultural mindset that Japan still had, like even into like, probably even to the modern time. Like I'm not a huge, like, I don't have a lot of knowledge about modern Japanese culture, but I can tell you just from watching like enough movies, you know, for every decade from like the 20th century, like that's a central theme is that idea. Sure. And Mike, if anything is about like flipping like your expectations and what you're seeing in a movie. And sometimes he goes a little too far. Oh, yeah. I mean, if it, there's a Japanese director, that's an iconoclast. Like it's, it's him. I mean, modern. Yeah. Yeah. Modern. Um, yeah, modern. Yeah. Him and him and him and B. Takashi, I think, are probably like the two. Yeah, he still goes a little traditional sometimes, though. Takashi. Um, but for as little horror as in as in this movie, and you know, what, what what's the runtime of this movie? Ninety minutes, maybe. No, no, it's it's much longer than that. Is it? Yeah. Doesn't feel like it. Maybe to you, it feels like it. There's they, maybe they, like they, Frank. They all feel like it to me. <laughs> There's um, maybe like 20 minutes of actual like quote unquote horror in this movie, you know, and a lot of it is him imagining things or it's like scenes that you're not actually sure if like what you're seeing is there. Like, you know, him hour 55 minutes. All right. So it's not that long. Um, Just the way that it builds all that tension just through like small, normal interactions. And still makes it interesting. And I, I think that they're well-rounded characters. I think you're interested in the characters. And I think it builds enough of your... You know, this guy's like... Ioma is the protagonist of this movie. But it builds enough where... By the end, you're kind of like... Yeah, like this guy's kind of a scumbag. Like, even though like he's pretended to be like this good father. And, mm-hmm. and maybe not even a scumbag. He's just a person. You know, like he's sure. not like a... Right, because he's not, like, a guy that's, like, going around, like, every day just being an asshole. Like, I mean, he's made really bad decisions in his life. Right. He made one really bad decision to sleep with his secretary. Sure. And, and, and well, and but he still has that, well, what we didn't call back then, what we call now, is he has privilege. Right. Um, And he has, and this guy is a guy that has a lot of privileges, you know, male privilege, class privilege, like, all those kind of things, you know? And it's, like, he he's a product of that. And like we, um, and I that's his. If he has a sin in this movie, that's his sin. Right, is that he's uh, acts out and uses that privilege at times. So one of the things too, like like basically having a casting couch because his friend, right? Because he's incredibly wealthy. Sure. And there's things in the movie too that like, and again, would not pretend to be like an expert on Japan or its culture, or whatever. But they they live in a big house like they live in like mm. almost an american size like house mm. in tokyo and right. or wherever they are but they're in a, a major city i mean you have to have like a huge amount of money to live in a place that big like in a japanese city mm. and it's like you know he woos her she's wearing like furs he takes her to expensive you know restaurants and all these things are him just like to your point like he's using like his money and his privilege mm. to buy an attractive young bride, really. And mm-hmm. it's like, yeah. he doesn't even know her. Like, he's dated her, like, two times before he's decided he's going to marry her. 
and he's marrying her because she's demure and she's um uh what's the word i'm looking for like like she's willing to like subjugate herself to him and it's all about like she wants to talk to him and i don't know it's um again like i don't know if you can say that anybody deserves to be like mutilated but it's definitely not like unwarranted that there's like a reaction like maybe it's an extreme reaction but it's pretty extreme yeah it's pretty extreme Um, so she would have just put him in a bag and made made him eat her puke like she did with the record producer right right yeah that's that's, that scene yeah i look i I, it feels like two different movies to me yeah it is and 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 i think that it's so much so like I, there there's a guy what was his name Chris Wagner of Dallas Morning News says that the shock imperative takes on a life of its own and floats away from the lengthy sh- setup and um there's some loaded language in there but I'm going to ignore it for now but that's how that is how I feel that it's like it, this whole thing once that happens it's a totally different movie and none of that shit that came before really ultimately matters that much and it's almost like it, it. It's not that to me. It doesn't feel like it's flipping us on its head or anything like that. It feels like it's telling you the only two things mattered in the first hour and twenty five minutes of this movie, and now fuck all that. And it's this. See, I don't agree with that. I think all that stuff matters. In yeah, the and I, I think that I think you summarized in thirty seconds what matters. Like you know when you were talking about it, like and you could have been more succinct uh, than your two minutes that you talked about it. You could have done it in thirty seconds, right, and that's but all that's, that matters. But the buildup. So again, like there's a whole genre of movies that are about the first hour of this movie, mm-hmm. basically. That that's the movie. It's like I had this catastrophe where my loved one died, and I've been just like devoted myself to my job and my my family. Because that's like the Japanese ideal at this time is like, you know, I'm going to be like that salary man that just goes in and plugs away and my head is down and I'm like doing the right thing. And so like it's it's building that so it can destroy it basically. And that's like the destruction of that first hour is the last like 45 minutes of the movie where it becomes like a really like, you know like disturbing horror movie for you know 40 mm-hmm. minutes maybe not even 40 maybe like 30 yeah it's like 30 i mean i think it's like <clears throat> i think it's like an hour 25 is when the weird shit starts happening and here's the other thing too so this is like there's like a couple visual clues to it you know so he goes to um ginzu to see the um the stepfather mm-hmm. and he goes from like like everything is filmed and it's all very like well-kept offices and homes and streets and then it's this boarded up ramshackle place with this guy with like a crackling fire pit of like metal skewers like playing discordantly on the piano in a wheelchair and then he goes to the um the stonefish or whatever the name of the bar is and it's like grimy and like flickering neon and like he imagines like the tongue and the fingers like flopping around on the ground. And like, that's the thing where all of this like veneer of, you know, beautiful, clean, whatever isn't is like juxtaposed with this stuff that you never see. And then like Mike's like, well, this is 
you know, this is the other side of that basically. And I think that that's, I mean, I think it's pretty brilliant the way that he does it. Like, I love that, that tonal shift where it's like almost like the bottom like drops out of like the entire movie. And then it's like, what the fuck? Like the first time you see it. Yeah. I I don't think I have a problem with that necessarily is like, I don't think I have a problem with like the, 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 the idea of the tonal shift. I think it's the execution of the tonal shift where it turns into the torture porn movie. And I, I mean, and that's, that's exactly what it is. It's torture porn. For, um, I mean, Eli Roth is inspired by this movie for, for six minutes. Right. But it's like, it's so far in the other direction. And it's like, it's not just the torture porn. It's, it's the, it's the vomiting in the dog bowl and making the guy eat it, you know, and those kind of things. Like, um, it's just this kind of shock value, gross out stuff that, you but know, really artfully done. Yeah, sure. He's a, Looks great, real good. he's a great director. You know, I mean, the guy made fucking a dude coming on a plant look good, at least, even if it's fucking, you know, a terrible opening to a movie. I mean, talk so, about a movie you love, right? <laughs> yeah, a movie Chris, that you love. Chris, <laughs> Chris is referring to Ichi the Killer, which is another divisive movie between the two of us. Yes, yeah, probably much more divisive than <laughs> this is because, like, I've, I've probably softened my stance <laughs> on this over time a little bit. Like, I get it. Like, I just think that it takes me out of the movie. And I think it was, I think that lengthy setup that, you know, this guy is talking about here, which I think is him kind of throwing shade at the beginning of this movie is, I think has a lot of subtlety to it. I think it's a really good study of loneliness with complications to it. Like, you know, in terms of him not being like a, a perfect guy, like at all, but it's like, I think it's a study of loneliness and like, how to come out of that that suddenly is just undercut with this tonal shift that I think the execution of it goes it's a joke that, that's what it is it's like sure it, it, there's an element to it that is yeah, a joke it's 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 Mike having a laugh right at people and it's like and I get what the point that you're making it doesn't mean that I have to like it just because but, I get it so it also and I I just thought of this so this might come off as like a little like fractured like my thoughts but it's almost like the perfect urban legend too like it really is like you know i can see that you know this is what you know always like here's this thing you did and here's like the ridiculous like you know the two kids are making out in the car sure then the guy with the hook hand like murders the guy and like hangs him over the car like it's okay so you were having sex and then like your death is like, you know, I mean, so it's the you, same thing. You, like, you take out, honestly, it works better today than it does ever. If you take out the casting call aspect of it um, and make it a dating app, like it's the perfect sure. legend. Right. Like, but I mean, that's the same thing. It's the same. Sure. Idea. Sure. It is. Yeah. Even though I think there were like dating apps, not apps, but there like, were websites back then, the early websites. Yeah. In 99. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I love it. I think it's, yeah. I think it's a beautiful movie in a lot of ways. Like, there's some scenes that are just amazing the way he films them. Like, the way he uses color to, like, identify what you're seeing. Like, to basically tell you, like, what you're watching. Like, the blues when they're in the, um, like, the seaside villa. And then, like, the oranges and reds. Like, when she's, basically, like, she's, she's a fury. You know, like, a Greek fury in a lot of ways. And, like, it's, like reds and browns and oranges and yellows and i don't know i just so much about the movie that i like i don't feel like it feels over long and i don't feel like the setup feels 
like there's too much to it. Like I think that he infuses enough of like a underlying like creepy atmosphere to it that it it moves the movie along and like you feel kind of like uneasy watching it the whole time. Also because it is kind of creepy like watching these two men, like grown old men, like use their power to sure manipulate. Is. Absolutely. I mean, especially like considering what we've gone through in the last three years of right. like things have been exposed in this country. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's 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 creepy to watch. I it's really he's he's a great filmmaker. Like I think Mikay's really good director. I think he films. I think he's unique. I think that you know I think all these great things about him. It's, I just I've never I've never felt comfortable with the end of this movie, and I think that's really I, I've never verbalized that before. I don't think, but it's like I think. That it's like you're making me invest in all of, in this character, and I think something and 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 doing it very well of those type of movies you're talking about, probably. But it's making me really invest in this character, uh, these characters, and then it's like it's also he can have a laugh at the end of it, and it's kind of a joke. And it's like, um, it might even be a funny joke. It doesn't mean that I have to like it though. <laughs> I mean, I get you. I don't. Know, I just I saw this movie. A year after it came out, maybe even the same year. Um, I, it's it's a really important film to me in terms of like, sort of like my transition from, I don't know, just like my tastes in horror kind of. Mm-hmm. And my, I think it was my introduction to Mikkei, if I'm not mistaken. I think that might be the first movie of his that I saw. It definitely was for me. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I really love it. Like, I think that it's really well done and. Like, watching it last weekend, I still feel like it's stand Like, it, you know, I it, it felt like a half hour, like, watching that movie. Like, it went by really fast, and I was still really into it, and felt really, I don't know, like, awake and interested, you know, even, like, at the end. Like, I don't yeah. know. I know, I mean, it keeps you interested, no matter what. I mean, I feel about it. It keeps you interested throughout. Um... There's a, there, I guess it's, I think it is the end that uh, is a, makes it feel a little long to me is like that last, like when it, when the hallucinations and all that stuff like being worked into the the mutilation, right. I think that's where I feel like it gets like a little over long possibly. I'm trying to think what BK movies do I actually like? I don't know how many you've seen. Um, you like Happiness of the Catacuries, definitely. Yeah, I love Happiness of the Catacuries. Um. I don't think you haven't seen Thirteen Assassins. I don't think, which is really good. No, you had me watch that. Oh yeah, that's a really good movie. That's a good movie. Yeah, I like that. Um, his remake of Harakiri is really fantastic. Like, it's a really well done remake of something where I thought, like, man, there was no need to remake this. Um, I think I saw Dead or Alive. I liked it. Uh, I can't imagine you liking Dead or Alive. No? That's crazy. Maybe I don't know. Um, oh. his Z- Zatoichi movie is really good. I mean, yeah, I yeah, yeah, I watch that. I like that character a it's, lot. It's 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 decent. Yeah, I liked Gozu. Yeah, Gozu's a good movie. Um, you don't like Ichi? No. Um, I can't imagine you liking Dead or Alive, man. Really? I'm pretty sure I liked it. Maybe. I mean, that's that's the gangster one. Yeah, I think. Yeah, that's it. That's the one I'm thinking of. I think. Um, the one R- Riki or whatever the story of Riki, Ricky. Um, that one's like really over the top. That's a prison one. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Did I see? He's made so many movies. Like it's really hard. Yeah. To... Did I, I? For some reason, I think I seen that uh, Sakiyaki Western 
Django. Oh, right. Yeah, that yeah. movie's good. Yeah. Sukiyaki. Sukiyaki, yeah. Um, yeah, so there's plenty of stuff. I mean, I, I, and even if I don't like it, it's like a, some of his stuff. It's like, he's a really great filmmaker. But, um, you know, I'm always, even if I don't like it, I'm always interested in what he's kind of doing and stuff like that. I haven't seen anything very recently um, out of the stuff that he's done. But I'm looking through his list right now. I mean, a lot of the stuff... Yeah, I'd like to see some of his more recent stuff, actually. Yeah, that, um... Have you seen Harry the original? No. Um, the remake of it, his remake is really good, and definitely, definitely worth watching. The original is definitely worth watching, too. Oh, he directed a JoJo's Bizarre Adventure? That's crazy. I had no idea. Why? The Great Yokai War. I've seen that, too. Oh, right, I love that. I, I made you watch that. That was, um... Which one is that? It, it's a kids movie he made. It's the one with um, the little boys at the festival, and the Kieran like blesses them, and then he becomes like, yeah, kind of the superhero. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. And there's like a big like floating, um, monster city. Oh, one Miss Collie did too, which I, I, I do not like. One it was Miss fine. It, I didn't think it was great, but it was like it was whatever. Like I. Yeah, I just think he's really divisive in, like, some of the stuff that he does. Sometimes, like, yeah, I mean, he can definitely be over the top. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to really talk about happiness category. I would like to watch happiness categories, at least at some point. But Yeah. Um, okay, so, you love it. I do. I think that the ending's divisive and will turn some people off um, of this movie, uh, out of it. And that's what I'll stick to for the rest of my life, is that it's a joke that I... It's a joke that I didn't really appreciate that much. Because <laughs> you okay. don't get it. <laughs> I do get it. I just don't like it. <laughs> okay, Sh- okay, Chappelle. Like, you know. Right. Like, I, I just don't get the joke. Um, okay, you ready to move on to number two? Yeah, number two. Okay, so number two on your list is Jacob's Ladder. This came out in 1990. It's directed by Adrian Lyne. Stars Tim Robbins, Elizabeth Pena, Danny Aiello, Matt Craven. Has a 72% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 84% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it so much? Uh, so Robbins plays uh, Jacob Singer. Um, he's a postal worker in, um, I guess, like mid-70s New York, post-Vietnam War. Um, you find out early in the movie that he was a survivor of a massacre of basically his entire, I guess unit or squadron whatever that you know term would be and then he was like wounded in the attack as well um he has bizarre visions um and circumstances that happen including like seeing what he thinks is like a tentacle coming from like a homeless person being locked in a subway like seeing these faceless like humanoid things with like that vibrate really fast um Lives with his girlfriend, uh, Jezebel. Um, but you find out that he had a family prior to being in the war. His youngest son was killed. He misses his family, which she kind of takes like umbrage with that. He's not like fully happy being with her. Um, goes to a party and his palm is red and it's in the, I don't know what you would call her, like the psychic or whatever tells him that basically he's already dead. Um, witnesses this large demonoid creature like 
like fucking Jezebel in a dance floor and like falls into this like severe fever that she has to put him like in an ice bath to get him out of it. Um, tries to contact, you know, like his doctor from the past and goes to the VA hospital and finds out that like, there's no record of him and that the doctor died in an explosion meets up with some other former buddies who are also like survivors from the same unit that are also experiencing similar things. Um, tries to like retain a lawyer to sue the government for what he thinks were experiments done on him. Um, but then the lawyer like backs out and he thinks it's because there's like government pressure. And then one of his friends also dies in a car explosion. Um, basically through a series of like increasingly like, I don't know, like unhinged like visions and events. Um, is told that he is like dead basically. And then, um, his friend, one of the, I guess, I think maybe the most pivotal scenes in the movie is, um, friend is telling him that, you know, like the idea of hell isn't necessarily that you're being punished. It's that your, your spirit is having its past memory stripped away because you can't move on while you still like are trying to hold on to the world. Um, it eventually it's revealed that, you know, that he, they were experimenting on his unit in the war that they basically given him a drug where every turned him all crazy and like hyper aggressive and that he died in Vietnam. Um, and that that was him. Like the whole movie is him working through like moving past the physical world to move on and, you know, finally like ascending the titular, like Jacob's ladder. Um, to heaven, like with the, the spirit of his son. Um, movie does a fantastic job. It, it's weird because Adrian line. A flash dance. Fame. Yeah. Flash dance nine and a half weeks. I mean, indecent proposal. This is a guy that's right. not like known for, you know, weighty, like psychological horror or anything, but does an amazing job throughout the movie of like making you the viewer unsure all the time of like is what you're seeing like really happening is jacob actually crazy um and holds on to that reveal that he's actually dead like long enough where it's it's pretty impactful when you find out like that you know like none of these things are happening that he basically is like having living this entire life while he's like perishing on an operating table like in vietnam um really Pivotal, pivotal and influential movie in terms of its visuals, um, especially uh, the effect that line does of like filming someone like moving <clears throat> at a slower camera speed and then like running the film at like normal speed. So they appear to be, you know, that whole like vibrating thing, um, which I think was, I think it was first done by the brothers Quay, the guys that kind of inspired the, um, the tool videos, like mm-hmm. the stop motion animation um, thing. But just really, like, visually stunning movie. Um, You feel really bad for Tim Robbins the entire time, I think, because just seems like genuinely, like, a decent guy that just is kind of, like, losing his grasp on reality, but can't be sure if the people around him are even, like, giving him, like, correct information or if there's, like, really... I mean, (laughs) 
there's a point in the movie where you feel like he's probably right that there is some kind of conspiracy against him. Um, I don't know. Just, uh, like, I love the visuals in the movie. I think that it really captures, like, <clears throat> that 1970s aesthetic, you know, like the taxi driver, mean streets, whatever look of like the grimy, sweaty, congested New York City. And then yeah. adding like those bizarre, like horror elements to it um, that make you feel uncomfortable as a viewer. And like, it's very, not, not, not difficult to watch, but very uneasy watching it. And I think especially the first time you see it, like it really feels claustrophobic and like you feel paranoid, like along with them. And I think it's Agreed. like a really yes. effective, the way that it's filmed, the way that it's acted, the way that it's written, like it's really effective of like putting you in the same frame that, that Jacob is in. Um, and it got some really great performances. Like I think um, I don't really know Elizabeth Pena from anything, but I think she's really good as Jezebel. She's, yeah, so she's somebody. It's, she is really good as, as in, in that role, and it's, she's somebody you've seen in little roles like here and there, but you don't really see her much in like kind of a starring role. And um, I think she does a really good job with that character for what yeah. that character's supposed to be. It's interesting because the original, so the screenplay existed for a long time before yeah. this movie was filmed. And the original, like, I guess, like, premise of the movie was much more religious <clears throat> in its outlook. Um, and Adrian Lyne, like, turning it from being, like, what probably would have been kind of, like, more a more boring movie to make it, like, legitimately just about, like, someone being torn between heaven and hell to make it, like, that psychological, like, does this guy have PTSD? Is yeah. this guy, like, did these things really happen? Like, does he actually even remember... Sure. You know, like what happened when he was in Vietnam, like all that stuff, you know, where you doubt it and he doubts it as well, but like you still kind of believe him because he's such an earnest, yeah, like well-rounded character. Sure. Um, it's a much more interesting movie and still allowing for like the idea that like, you know, he is just kind of like burning away the last vestiges of his connection with the world so he can like move on to heaven. Yeah. And that whole idea that like that's the moment flashing before your eyes because basically like, you know, it's happening, like, as he's... Like, they're trying to save him on the table, and then he's dying. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, Again, some really, like... Really influential visuals in the movie. I mean, yeah. it, it's kind of been overdone. And you can kind of, you sort of blame, like, Silent Hill, which drew a lot of inspiration from, like, the look of this movie. Mm -hmm. um, and the ideas of the movie, too, of, like, being, like, trapped in a possibly not real like reality or like some like pseudo reality um and the idea of like your past like being this thing that weighs on you and like not being able to escape like fully ever like what you've done until you're willing to come to terms with it. i mean that's a big premise of silent hill and it's kind of i think maybe i don't know if it removes some of the impact of jacob's ladder like especially if you've been subject to like those games or like a lot of modern horror um, which, like, steals liberally from the look that Adrian Lynn created here. Um, but still, like, really fantastic. And I think it really stands up. And I think it's both the direction, um, the way the sound is used in the movie. 
Um, and then the, the visual, like the, the look of everything, just the way that it's like the sets are designed and the, the makeup and the prosthetics and whatever. Um, and a hundred percent practical effects in this movie, mm-hmm. um, which not really surprising for 1990, but still like you're on the cusp of like the, the start of the use of like more computer generated effects. So seeing it as like all practical, it makes it, I think like more impactful and makes it feel more real. It's interesting because I don't know if you know, but there are a lot of people that really shit on like the camera work and stuff like this and the effects at the time because it was so new. Yeah. And people just weren't expecting it. And there are some comparisons to music videos and um, uh, Gleiberman, um, him is definitely was one of the big ones that was like said that was was anti it was yeah. disliked this movie for all that kind of stuff. Um, I mean stuff that sounds stupid now considering how influential it's become. Right. Uh, says it serves up horror and subliminal jump cut flashes. Um, he describes it as uh, lines version of flash gore because he's trying to be witty, I guess. Um, is like talking about how he's like using those techniques from Flashdance, like in this movie to some right. degree. And, um, he says it's like a bad acid trip of a movie, and it may appeal to those who got off on the druggy, soft focused demonism of Angel Heart. Yet the film is just a highfalutin hack work, two hours of anything for sh- a shock unpleasantness. Um, yeah. I mean, I would argue that this movie and the evil dead movies are probably the most influential in terms of like direction and sort of setting the tone for not only horror, but like a lot of other, you know, like music video. I mean, that's, that's fine because like it really did influence a lot of stuff in terms of like the way it was filmed. And, you know, you can see, especially stuff in like the late nineties, early two thousands, not only like American horror movies and American like movies in general, but, you know, like, the way that, like, Japanese movies are filmed. Like, they took a lot of stuff from the way that the, the mm-hmm. Lynn... Line or Lynn? You line. Know? Okay, the line. I always have said it in my head, Adrian Lynn. Um, the way that line film stuff, you know, I mean, it, like, really almost created, like, you know, the... It, it definitely took horror from just being, like, I don't know. It, it makes it more than like, it's it's very artistically done and very um relevant i think even today like to watch it and you can see that like just how visionary he was um in the way that he shot things yeah. but i can see like somebody contemporaneous contemporaneously like not understanding what they were watching i don't know yeah um Dustin Howe of the Washington Post criticizes the ending saying that it sets you up for earth-shattering spiritual conclusion but it ends up de- delivering a disappointingly conventional finale uh, that indicates that he read Occurrence at Owl Creek, Owl Creek Bridge uh, that like is number one, <laughs> two, that he remembers the government paranoia movie era of all the president's men in three days in the condor, and three, that he liked the ghost ending too much. Um, and I can see that. Like right. I, th- I think the ending is a little, like maybe a little flat to some degree. I mean, it's... He admittedly, like, Lyon admits that he loves Owl Creek Bridge. Sure, yeah, yeah. He drew inspiration from it, like, yeah. <clears throat> and that's fine. I mean, I think yeah. that it's... Oh, yeah. 
that's I, I think that it's a really relevant I mean, it still was like difficult, I think, for people to talk about Vietnam at that yeah. point. Like yeah. those movies were still even though you had things like Platoon and um Yeah. Well, I remember growing up it was still divisive. Right. Well, like I mean, to, to talk about we had a lot of like relatives that were thirties yeah. and forties, you know, that were Vietnam veterans at sure. the time. And like you knew people and like it was a lot closer to when people were still being treated like shit coming back from like fighting in that war. Right. And that's the thing is like, there was still that those remnants, even in the eighties and nineties of people that were like that protested the war and didn't respect the soldiers necessarily. And those people that usually had people that served and, you know, did get spit on when they came back. Like, you know, from Vietnam and you know was was pissed off about that kind of those kind of actions from protesters and it's like that was still real real like even when we were young yeah there's actually another movie that um I would say is more like the that this is more the spiritual successor to I mean he he brings up like all the president's men in um, three days of the condor and like I understand that but and I actually just watched this movie yesterday um uh, the Ninth Configuration. It's a uh, William Peter Blatty's like first movie that he directed. Um, that's it's very similar. It's about like the psychological trauma suffered by men in service and like how they cope with it. And then there's like some mysticism that's involved in it as well. Um, but a really similar idea. Um, but very like much more like traditionally shot. Um, but it's still yeah. I think it's. From a psychological perspective, I think it's interesting because it's like, even if you take out like the whole spiritual element to the end of the movie, you know, how much does like your past like stay with you? And like the idea that he suffered, you know, from the way that he was treated from like PTSD, you know, from like Mm -hmm. seeing his compatriots like slaughtered, like how they care, how you carry that like through the world. And that's one of the things that, you know. Like, I love um, unreliable narrator movies and the fact that you're pretty much following, you know, Jacob throughout the entire movie. And, like, you don't know if what he's seeing is real or not or if he really is just, like, crazy, basically. So, yeah, I I think so. This is the second time I've ever seen this movie. I've seen it a long time ago now, and I liked it much better this time watching it. And I think it has to do with the fact that I'm older now Mm. Um, and I was too young even if it was in my early 20s, I was way too young to... I felt... What it is is I felt this movie much more this time, I think. And, um... So... I think the thing that really got me... Like, you, you're you exactly right. You feel the paranoia yeah. in this movie. It's very claustrophobic feeling, like... And... I feel found the horror of this actually coming from the idea that he's living a life that might not actually be his life. Right. And once he realizes that, he thinks there's a different life he lived at one point, and that's not this. And then suddenly becomes suspicious of his girlfriend, you know, who obviously is actually in a real relationship with. You know, I mean, it's like they they take great pains to show you that this is their life, you know, this is like how they live, and um, I was texting you the night that um 
that I watched this and I was saying, it's like, I think the hard, and I think a lot of people can relate to it because I think everybody in those parts of our minds that we don't talk about has these little imaginations, like these scenarios almost they play out of like, what if this hadn't happened? What would my life be like? Sure. And, um, just recent stuff in my life is like, made, made me start like thinking about that much more. Um, and like the idea that like the life that you're comfortable with is there's like this other, like, um, like, uh, like a parallel, like, you know, universe type thing where it's like, it could end up like this or, um, whether that's the future or the past and like, you right. know, and, the, and it plays with time in this, I think a lot. <laughs> um, like it all becomes jumbled in some ways because it's like he's in the 90s, he's in the 80s, but it's actually like when he died in the war in the 70s and, you know, like, and, and the stuff that he's remembering is actually some version of what happened before the war, but it's still playing out in the present possibly. It's right. And it's like, it all becomes just like, you know, all the, all the universes collapse kind of into this like one, you know, thing as things are being burned away. But it's like that idea that I think you can relate to the horror because, you have these imaginations and it's like you play them out because there might be things that are intriguing about sure. those scenarios you run through your head and it's like, well, what if this, and then it's like you, you play it out and see how it goes. And you realize that Christ, the, the, it's not, it's never what you think it's going to be anyway, but it's like, if you really think about it, it's like, well, what would that actually be like? And then you realize the horror of like the comfort that you do have in your life now compared to that, with that potential, it's scary because it's unknown, but it's also scary because it's like, you realize you take some solace in what you have now. Right. And it's like the horror that he actually thinks he has this wife and kids. Like that's supposed to be his reality, but instead he's divorced. He doesn't see the kids you know, he's living with this woman who, and then you add the complication on that, like, she might be part of this plot against him in some right. way. Um, there might be some element of, like, demonology there. Right. Like, and yeah. it's like, I and I, I can't help but think that, I can't remember the guy's name that wrote this, I can't help but think that there's not something there with just the idea of divorce he's playing with, too. Sure. And, like, you know, those kind of things. And, um like of 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 the life after <laughs> divorce you know um uh of, of of how that can almost be this kind of like almost like sad horrific type you know situation for some people and uh yeah i f i felt this movie much more this time as i like started personalizing it for myself a lot yeah. more and i actually think that this movie makes you feel more if you think about it you could find a lot of things to criticize, I think, about this movie at times. Like, in terms of the plot and stuff like that. But if you're just watching it, and I usually don't care to say this, but it's like, I think it's a movie that you need to just sit there and watch and feel. And, and like, think about the situation of the character. As opposed to, um... As opposed to think about the plot elements right. as much. Because I think that the Vietnam stuff of the drugging and all that kind of stuff is stupid and completely unnecessary. Is it even true, though? You know what I mean? Maybe. Right, yeah. I mean, maybe it's a... I don't know. I Maybe they're... Again, like, I... it. He's an unreliable narrator because he's... But they show the thing at the end of the movie of, like, how that was actually kind of... 
Didn't they say? Don't they have something like little code at the end of the movie? That they comes do up, like I, text about like people being experimented on like during the war and stuff like right. that. Right, and, and the government is always disavowed. And right, knows, right, right. I, I mean, who knows? But I, I just think it's a stupid damn subplot. Like if I think about it, but as I'm watching it and trying to put myself in Jacob Singer's position, right? If you just sit there and watch it, it's like it's you can feel that kind of paranoia and tension yeah. and horror. I mean, you you definitely, like... It's definitely a very visceral movie, and there's a lot of scenes... Um, I mean, from the start of the party scene through, like, him ending up in the hospital, like, that's all very, like, uncomfortable mm-hmm, to watch. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> the scene where, like, he's... Like, the lights change, and it gets foggy, and he's dancing, or everybody's dancing around him, and... Mm-hmm. she's like getting like railed by the demon oh like, yeah that's, that's very like yeah, yeah. like that it, it like makes my chest heavy like watching that yeah scene. yeah absolutely so, yeah <clears throat> i don't know like it's um yeah i think it stands up really well i think it still is like a really interesting and important mm-hmm. movie to watch mm-hmm. and especially like if you've enjoyed like pop culture over the past i don't know 30 years like sure. i think it's worth watching it just to see kind of the genesis of some of these things that have yeah. become like hyper prevalent like visually and thematically in our in our art yeah all uh, from a guy that directed nine and a half weeks <laughs> right <clears throat> um i don't I, I don't know which is the worst there nine and a half weeks or indecent proposal i think indecent oh indecent proposal is worst movie than nine and a half weeks yeah right okay um, um yeah because but I, it's it's not as like I, I saw indecent proposal in the theater that's that's great yeah um I I got drugged to it. And... So nine and a half weeks is funny because that used to be like, like you were never allowed to rent that movie. They was nine and a half weeks was one of those movies. <laughs> I, mean, that I was remember like, it right. Yeah, you could have. Yeah. <clears throat> like it was like behind the counter and like you had to like a parent <laughs> had to rent it. And like not that I ever wanted to rent. Well, I mean I'm sure I did want to rent it, but <laughs> like for the longest time, you know, like pre pre like easy access to like pornography. Like man, nine and a half weeks or um. Fuck, what was... There was, like, Two Moon Junction. There was a bunch of them from around that time that were, like... Yeah. <clears throat> like, pseudo-softcore, like, psychosexual movies that, like, everybody was like, oh, did you get to see? Blah, blah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, but, it, but it's so weird in contrast. It's, like, Indecent Proposal, which is not as sexual as those movies necessarily, but there's enough. It's, right. like, there was no question, because I got drugged to it by, like, my middle school girlfriend. Like, but... No question of like the two of us at like thirteen whatever years old buying tickets and going to see this movie. That's really like, surprising because there was a period that what's, they what's did. Decent pros like ninety three, ninety three. Um, it was around. It was after. It was <clears throat> Natural Born Killers was around that time. So it was ninety four where they started paying attention more. I mean, I remember getting carded and having to have like a an adult present when we went to see Backdraft. Really? Yeah. And that was at the Christiana Mall. You probably saw a decent proposal at Regal. I saw it at Regal, at yeah. At People's Plaza. Yeah. Um, our local, like, theater that's been our theater for most of our lives. Yeah. Um, Christiana Mall, like, they carded us. Like, they wouldn't let us into backdraft. We had to get our friend's yeah. um, 18-year-old sister to go in with us. That's so weird because it's, like, two years later, no, three years later, I guess, like, things like uh, Usual Suspects, People versus Larry Flint, we didn't get carded for anything. Well, I remember at, we, at Christiana. I'm talking about when I when I worked because I worked at Regal a couple years after this, mm-hmm. so I was there. I started in like '96, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, we were carding people for um, 
like everything. Like we were really absolutely about. right. But I'm saying there was that period like of like '94 with like Pulp Fiction, Natural Born, Natural Born Killers. I had to have an adult with me. My mom had to go with Bledsoe and I to go to see Natural Born Killers because it was NC-17. They would not allow kids in there. But she was real happy about that. Uh, she liked the movie. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, my yeah, my mom, my mom's weird. Like she's so wholesome, but she actually does like a lot of that kind of shit. But um. But yeah, so like it was there. It was around ninety four when it started changing, and then it just got stricter. When you're talking about like in terms of like when you started around ninety six, it's like yeah, they were becoming much more strict about that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I remember because I actually would have to get my mom even at sixteen sometimes, depending on who was working. I'd have to get her to come in because she'd always wait outside and see. Right, and she'd kind of have to come in and buy tickets for Bledsoe and I and stuff like that. I mean, I remember having to like buy tickets for my friends to see Jade. That um, mm. Linda Fiorentino, sure, uh, David Caruso, yeah, yeah, David Caruso, yeah. um, and yeah. Showgirls too, right? And actually, I don't think I was allowed to buy tickets for my friends to Showgirls because I was eighteen. Because that was NC seventeen, yeah. yeah. And it wasn't like that was a bad idea anyway. But show going to see watching yeah. Showgirls, yeah, yeah it's a bad theater. idea. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But everybody had to see it back then. Right. Like it was, um, I've seen it. <laughs> See it all. I, I, unfortunately. I, <laughs> all right. Any last thoughts on Jacob's Ladder? No. I mean, okay. again, like a movie that I highly recommend. And one of my favorite horror movies, probably top 20, top 30 horror movies of all time for me. Okay. All right. So, number one on your list is 1965 movie Repulsion, directed by Roman Polanski, starring Catherine Deneau, Yvonne Ferno, and Ian Hendry. It has a 98% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 86% from audiences. Want to tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it so much? Um, so it follows uh, Catherine Deneau's character, um, Carol, uh, who's a shop girl um, working at like a beauty salon. Uh, she's disaffected, um, easily distracted, gets accused many times of like basically being asleep on the job or just being like completely out of it. Um, so with her sister, her sister's a much more like outgoing and like worldly, like socialite who's dating, uh, what's implied to be a married man. Um, early on and throughout the movie, she has very stilted and uncomfortable interactions with men. Like she's very uncomfortable around men. Um, the way the Polanski films the movie is, it kind of puts you on edge the entire time you're watching it, just the way that he does, like, he has a lot of steady cam in it, and then he does a lot of, like, really close shots of, like, body parts, uh, especially, like, the face, the eyes. Um, Catherine Deneau is, like, Carol's constantly staring at things with, like, a half-disgusted, half-horrified look. Um, she's being wooed by a young man who's, like, in love with her that she rebuffs his advances continuously. Um, so her sister goes out of town for 10 to 12 days, I think is what they say, um, with the married boyfriend, um, and she's left alone in the house and she swiftly devolves into like insanity, um, having waking nightmares of being raped, um, being grabbed by hands coming out of the wall, um, she lets food out to spoil and she's consistently like fascinated with like the 
decomposition, including taking like the head of a decaying rabbit with her in her purse. Um, ends up hurting one of the patrons at the shop. Um, and then subsequently murders the guy that's interested in her who breaks into her house to try and force his love on her. <clears throat> then murders her landlord who comes in and tries to like basically do a quid pro quo where if she sleeps with him, like he'll waive the rent for the month. Um, and eventually when her sister and the boyfriend come home and they discover everything, she's kind of carried away by the boyfriend who has like a semi like lecherous look on his face as he's like carrying her out. Um, and then one of, in my opinion, one of the greatest like endings of cinema history, which is the slow, like zoom in on this photo of her, um, staring at like an older male relative with like this look of like disgust and horror and like disassociation on her face, um, implying that, you know, she was molested as a child and that's why she has like these violent reactions to like men trying to force themselves on her. Um, and also in like the, the rape sequences, you get that idea too, that like it was something where maybe it happened at night because there's no sound in those sequences except mm-hmm. for the ticking of a clock. Um, it's always done where she's like flipped over on her stomach and like they're forcing themselves behind her. Yeah. Um, really uncomfortable scenes to watch. Um, the only real human interaction she has, it's like where she's animated and like lively is when she's talking to uh, one of the girls she works with who's having boyfriend troubles as well. And that immediately ends when the girl suggests that like the three of them go out to the movies since she doesn't want to like, you know, she immediately like goes back into like her repressed shell. Um, Catherine Deneau is, it's like perfect casting because she's like one of the most like beautiful actresses of the time. Like definitely like one of the most popular actresses in terms of her, you know, her physical beauty and just her like almost like etherealness and playing the character as this, just completely like shut down almost like visually obsessive like mental and physical shut-in where like she stares at like she gets fixated at one point like staring at a crack in the floor because or on not the floor but in the street um and like in her house and stuff because she can't mend the cracks like inside herself i guess is the the visual metaphor there um and then some other small things that show that, like, she's kind of obsessed with this lost childhood that she had and, like, some small things that she, like, becomes fixated on. Um, I mean, visually, it's 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 a stunning movie. Like, it's Polanski, the master of, like, filming the uncomfortable, like, Dutch angles and just, like, playing with your ideas, your perception of, like, what the reality is. I mean, there's the vent above the sink that has like four different or three different like cracks coming out of it that disappear like the next time you see it. Mm -hmm. So again, like it's like, is that even really there? Um, The way that she like projects these men like that are like assaulting her and raping her and really uncomfortable thing, like towards the end of the movie where she's actually like getting ready to go to bed. And I guess in anticipation of the rape, is, like, putting on makeup so she can be, like, pretty when she's there and still is, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, Probably, like, in, again, so we've talked about this a few times, like, with Baby Jane and sort of with, like, Jacob Slatter a little bit, too. Like, 
in terms of like our understanding and our acceptance of like psychological trauma and like issues, like I think we've moved far beyond what repulsion is able to like say in 1965. Um, so it, it comes off maybe as a little ham fisted in the idea that, and I've, I've read criticism where people argue that it's not over that. Like she was like somehow like assaulted or molested as a child, but I that's, think it's like, that's in, bullshit. Incredibly. Like, of course like, that's what it's about. And right. like, that's, that's what the end of the movie tells you. You just have to like actually see it, like watch it. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, like, we would not say that someone becomes schizophrenic because they were assaulted as a, you know, sexually assaulted as a child. Right. Like, that's, it's it's kind of like a ham-fisted look at, like, the actual psychology behind that. But, like, brilliantly done. And, like, even if, like, I mean, I, it's I don't a, know. It's a generic stereotype, but it's not totally wrong. Right. You know, I mean, I, and it's. It's the story of one character. It's not like a sure, like a gross like generalization about anyone. Right. Yeah. It's just I, her specifically. Right. It's her. Right. It's, I also and I I only started thinking about this since I watched it this week and I watched this movie on Saturday. Um. So yesterday. I think that. I think that there's an implication that she might be gay as well. Because the only time that she like opens up and like brightens up and smiles and laughs is when the woman is talking to her and that's mm-hmm. the only time that she like wants to interact with anyone. And when the woman suggests that they go see the Charlie Chaplin movie together, like she's immediately excited about the idea. And then as soon as the woman says like, Oh, well my boyfriend will be there. Like she shuts down and like withdraws from it. So, I mean, I don't know if that's what it's trying to imply, but definitely that she is not able to have like any kind of connection with men at all. No. Oh, yeah. No, she's completely, yeah, I don't know. I, I'd have to go back and watch that scene again, but... Um, I had never thought about it before sure, watching it yeah. this time, but, like, as soon as, like, like when, when you see, like, the way that, like... And Deneau does a masterful job of, like... Because she, like, drops, like, all weight out of her cheeks most of the time in this movie and just has these dead, like, thousand-yard stare eyes. But it's the only time where, like, her cheeks, like, fill up and, like... Her face is animated and she's not just like slack jawed and like comatose almost. Yeah. Polanski uses close up so well in this movie, like yeah. with her, that a lot of directors it would feel cheap, I think, if they were doing close ups that often. But he knows when to go into a close up, I think, because he trusts her. Right. Uh, and what she's doing. And it works really well. And there, it's it's the way he lights the movie, too. Because there's elements where, like, you'll have one eye that's bright and focused. And then the other eye is completely, like, bathed in shadow or, like, mm-hmm. covered by her face. And, I mean, that's from the opening credits. Because, like, the credit crawl is, like, across, like, a close-up shot of her eye. Um, there's also other things, like, with the picture at the end. Which, again, like, to me is one of the most masterful mm-hmm. endings of, like, any movie I mean, this is legitimately, like, one of my favorite movies of all time. Mm. Um, there's early... So, there's one pan shot where she's... It's it's panning with her in the room, and she stops in front of the picture, and then becomes transfixed, and then it immediately pulls away. And the same thing happens, like, later in the movie, where she's transfixed on that picture, and then it's kind of like there's like a psychotic break after that. And so the implication is there that whatever she's seeing there. 
which I think is like just the memory of her childhood and the memory of Absolutely. like those events. Yeah. But there's the scene with um, there's a couple scenes where she's looking out the window because the apartment is adjacent to a churchyard, and there's a nun outside with like children, and this happens a couple times <clears throat> that she becomes transfixed on that, and the idea of like the children outside with like the adult figure. Mm-hmm. And then there's the um, the buskers, whatever you call them, like the street musicians, yeah. who she walks past like early in the movie and then later becomes transfixed on as they like go under her apartment window. And it takes that, that, that seems like long in terms of like what it's showing. And I think it's again like this idea that she can't get past that like she lost something in her childhood and she's like drawn to those ideas, which is why like the Charlie Chaplin thing as well is like so appealing, I think, because it's just like. Of all, like, like you know, movies you could see, like, they're some of the most innocent and just, like, you know. I mean, it's just, like, one of the first, like, straight comedies and hmm. um, something maybe that appeals to her in terms of, like, his innocence and its joy or whatever. I'm um, talking about the scene where, you know, Chaplin eats his shoe and mm-hmm. the fat man, like, wants to eat Chaplin. Right. So. But, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's, it's an amazing movie. Like, it's such a visually stunning movie. Um, yeah. such an uncomfortable movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, that that that's the thing. I really t- this is the third or fourth time I've seen it now. I can't remember, but um, yeah, this is. I, I mean, I I agree with everything you said. I mean, I, I this is a really strong movie, and you were saying earlier when we were talking about how impressive it is, considering this is his first English first language, English language like um, feature film, and uh, it's amazing, like what he does here. Uh, with this so yeah i mean she's great in it um i this is i guess the first in the apartment trilogy like the loose yeah this and then rosemary's baby and then the tenant like in the late 70s yeah um and while i really like rosemary's baby this is probably my favorite out of them this is my favorite planescape movie yeah by like a pretty wide margin i think really yeah. yeah, I mean, I I love Chinatown. Yeah, but, Chinatown's obviously my favorite. I, I, I mean, this is just like Chinatown's like a top three movie probably for me. So <laughs> for what he does in this movie, where there's large sequences where there's no dialogue whatsoever, mm-hmm. where it's really just like long sequences of her alone. So like when when he films the apartment too, I mean, it's brilliant. Like <clears throat> the sitting room, the living room, or whatever is is a small room. In reality, and then he films it several times where it's like a really long, expansive mm-hmm. room. Mm-hmm. There's the shot of the bathroom, um, where the she so once she kills her suitor, she puts his body like in the water. Um, and there's a shot where she's at the hallway, and it's like the hallway's like three times as long yeah. as what yeah, yeah. <clears throat> the actual apartment's hallway is, and it's just mm-hmm. the way that he continuously plays with like perspective and perception. And does it, like, where it's not, he's not obvious about it. Like, he's not calling attention to it. Like, you just have, you just see it. Sure. And it makes you feel kind of unhinged. Yeah. And when I was watching it, like, the other day, and I, there was a scene where she's in the living room and she's looking at something. Oh, it's, it's the the scene, the second scene where she's looking at the picture. Um, And I was like, man, like, this room seems really big. And then I realized, like, well, shit, like, of course, like, it's not even the same room. It's just, like. Mm-hmm. he's using this much larger set yeah. to like show like her distance from everything and show like her detachment from sure like what's actually there. and you want to talk and you want to talk about like 
set, you know, being like a trailblazer with some of that stuff that he's doing. Like, like not to say that those type of things hadn't been done, but I mean, as a to to show character psychology and especially abnormal psychology, like that that's early to be doing that yeah. in sixty five. Uh, like, and and to show it, so one like I I love Psycho, but one of the things that I find doesn't hold up in Psycho is the explanation of Norman Bates at the end. Sure, like where you have to over explain like why Norman is crazy, right? And not ever delving into why Carol is crazy is brilliant, and yeah. just showing you like and doing things where like these really like really amazing visual effects and not overdoing it. Like there's the one scene early on where the wall cracks next to her and you can kind of see like almost like the pulse of like flesh underneath mm-hmm. like the crack mm-hmm. of the wall. And then they never really go back. Like it, it happens like a couple, like briefly. Sure. But they never go back to it. Oh, you know what it is when she's looking at the picture, the cracks like shoot up from the picture. Like yes. it basically like the entire sure. wall like yep. shatters mm-hmm. um, in yeah. front of her. But that's that's what I, what I mean. I think to some degree by that is that Plansky trusts his viewer right. to be able to accept those things and realize that they are a manifestation of her psychological problems. And a lot of other movies before this time, you you. You didn't see that trust. It had, to, like you're saying about Psycho. Right. Rest in peace, Robert Forster, um, who reprised it, did that in the remake. But um, that explanation, like, it's just you have to put it all together yourself yes. of what's real, what's not, and then put together at the end, which is still fairly obvious, but it's like put together at the end why this is happening. So let me mm-hmm. say this like, when I, I saw this movie when I was maybe 16 for the first time. And I was with a group of, like, my, my friends and I watched it. The people that I hung out with that watched movies. And I don't know that it was immediately apparent, like, in that final shot. Like, we, we, we talked about it and, like, figured it out pretty quickly. But I, I can see, like, why people want to read other things into it. Like, And I think that a lot of times people watch, we've talked about this a number of times on the podcast, but they watch stuff with an agenda. Like, they watch it to try and match their own ideas of how things should be and not just like what the filmmaker's trying to show you. And I think there's some uncomfortable things about Polanski, like watching this movie, um, especially in the sense that there's the scene where she's going down the hallway the first time the hands, not the first time, the second time that the arms and hands are coming out of the wall mm-hmm. where one of the hands grabs her breast sure. and she almost like rears back into it like an ecstasy. And then the idea that, like, she's getting made up and trying to, like, welcome, like, the nightly, like, rape. It's it's really, like, an uncomfortable look at, like, the psychology of a guy that the latter part of his career has been defined by the fact that he is, like... Sure. You know. But, I mean, that's not... But, again, like, I... It's, it's such a... This, the, the thing I got took away from this time is how uncomfortable that movie is now in light of all the right. things with Polanski. Um, but it's like Lynch does that in Fire Walk with Me, as well. If you if you remember, like uh, the 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 scene that you actually like find out in Fire Walk with Me, that Laura finds out that Bob definitely is like Leland. Leland, right? Before she's like 
she's putting on like a a, a little nighty and doing her makeup before because she knows he's going to come because she knows from the what is it, the light or whatever the fan uh-huh. the fan the fan she knows from the fan he's going to come into her room that night she gets dolled up before the rape and there i mean the the, the victim the victim what, what what is the com what is the whole thing like uh like when people uh, identify with their captors. Stockholm syndrome? Yeah, like there's this element of like Stockholm syndrome that comes with victims sometimes where it's like yes, it's terrible and yes, you don't want it to happen, but there's also a part of it that like gets confused for affection and all these other things that happen sure. and it's like, you know, I so yes, it's disturbing that Polanski like puts that in there, but it's also not incorrect in a lot of cases of abuse. Yeah. Um, and so it's this really, because I see, still see this movie as like, Christ, like this is way ahead of its time. It is. In terms of like delving into, now, is it problematic that she's like a killer and stuff like that? It's like, maybe, but it's like. I mean, she's only killing people that try and force themselves on her. Absolutely, right. But I'm still saying it's like, you know, like, and that's not the, that's not the normal story. You know, like, uh, the normal story is that she, people force themselves on, you know, like that's what really is going right. on. But it, it's still delving into that trauma. Right. And it's trying right. to show that I think in a fairly realistic manner, besides the schizophrenia, the, you know, stuff and the killing stuff, I I think it is sympathetic, it feels, with this character. It is. So. She's not, she, she's not a villain. No, no. It's a, it's a and it's. So it's complicated to talk about it now because right. here's a guy who at 1965 has sympathy and then in nine years later is fucking a 13-year-old. Right. Drugging and... Drugging, drugging yes, yeah. A 13-year-old. Right. Right. I mean, I, it's... <clears throat> it's hard to hard to think about. Hard to talk yeah. about. Because... So, so this... <coughs> one of the, the one review that I pulled from... Um, was this guy Dwight McDonald? It's a contemporary review in um, '65 from Esquire magazine, and and this this kind of delves in a couple of different things we've kind of touched on a little bit, like all all of this. But he says that it's an interesting film for specialists. But he asked the question, why do the rest of us want to see it, and why did Plansky want to make it? He says he keeps himself out of repulsion as antiseptically as Capote and Hitchcock detach themselves from their products, which, as in their case, diminishes their work. Um, he goes on to give a couple of reasons why maybe he would want to make this film. Um, this gets tough. He says that maybe he's trying to tell us something about the brutal facts of this case. He says that maybe it's a technical challenge of trying to get something out of like a limited subject. Um, then he says, maybe he felt some sort of secret, uh, some secret acknowledgement of attraction to the theme, um, he suggests, and, uh, he kind of ends up settling on the idea that really what he was trying to do is he was trying to make something that was an entertainment film that would appeal to the West much more than it would Europe, um, because of the sexual implications behind some right. of it because of the killing um and that he was really just trying to get himself work in america and that's kind of why he want yeah. like did this film 
Um, and I don't even know if that's true or not. I mean, it could be. And he goes on to say that it's like, basically he's saying that mental illness isn't a very good subject to like make movies about, um, which is interesting in 65 because it touches on the idea of like how people felt about psychology during this time period. Um, and, but that hint there that, uh, uh, that like, why did he make this movie? And it's like, it's almost like, I think that the reason I'm uncomfortable watching it now is because even if he's sympathetic with that subject, in this movie, it's like there's an attraction to the theme. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's... But, I mean, I kind of felt that watching it, too. Like, yeah. for as icy and, like, aloof as Dino is in it, and she's does a great job, like, portraying that, she's sexualized. I mean, like, she's sure. about as naked as she can be without, like, ever being, like, sure. fully, like, nude on camera. And he definitely, like, lingers in shots on, like, her form and, um, like, there's a shot of her, like, walking away in, a, like, a slip where, like, he lingers on, like, the shot of, like, her legs and her butt and, I don't know, I mean, who knows? Like, you're never gonna know what Roman right. Polanski was thinking, like, when he was making yeah, the movie. Yeah, right, yeah. And I think it's really easy to, like, take our feelings about Polanski today and, like, put him in that mindset. I mean, because he was a different person. Maybe. Who knows? Who knows what anybody is, really. It's true. But. Right. That's right. No, so it's absolutely true. Um, Although, I mean, it seems to me that he was a different person before and after the murders. Right. Agreed. And, but like you said, you never know. It seems like this being a theme and then that happening, it's like it probably predates the murders. Yeah. Like in his mind somehow. And just, we don't know anything about his childhood either. I right, mean, and he's a guy who came from, you know, I mean, he's, what, Polish and... Communist rule in Poland right, like, at the so time. Like, you know, growing up without much, I mean, right. yeah. But, I mean, it's a brilliantly directed movie. Yeah. Um, again, like, I love Chinatown, but this is my favorite Polanski movie. Um, and I think it's just... I don't know. Like, I've seen this movie a dozen times, I would say, and it's eminently watchable. Watching it again, it felt like I was, like, a half hour long when I watched it the other day. I mean, like, I was immediately sucked into it, and, like, even though I know every single beat of this movie pretty pretty much by heart at this point, like, I still, like, really enjoy watching it and really find myself engaged in watching it. And that, I mean, the, the brilliance of just, like, the way that he sets up, like, the ending of that movie... Yeah, um, I don't know. It's just it's, no. It's a really masterful movie for someone who like you. You know, it's their second movie overall, their second feature movie. Yeah, and their first in English language. It's 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 really and well crafted. Knife in the Water, which is first movie, is really really a good movie, mm-hmm. and very taut, tense psychological like sexual thriller. Sure, but just I don't know. It it, it feels like years ahead of where it was when it came out absolutely not only in terms of like subject matter but just his talent as a director because i mean Mm -hmm. rosemary's baby i don't think is as good a movie as this no and i like cul-de-sac which came after this which it's is a good movie like i don't like as much as this movie either right and cul-de-sac has some brilliant stuff in it but man there's just so much in this movie that i just love yeah yeah no i agree it's it's a great movie i bought this movie i think it was kino video it was from Woolworths in Newark, mm-hmm. where Woolworth had like the bin of yeah. movies in the middle, and yeah, I, I got remember, this yeah. for like 
three dollars, I think, on VHS. I used to buy Star Wars figures from that Woolworth. I used to buy GI Joes from there too when I was. A yeah, kid, yeah, but, sure, same thing, but. Um, but yeah, like in the like early '90s, early to mid '90s, Woolworth had like a huge metal bin of just like three dollar, like three, four for ten dollars. I think they were, and it was like you know Night of the Living Dead and stuff like that. But Repulsion was in there, and one of my best purchases ever in my life. I think. Yeah. Okay, um, so that is our episode for the night. Um, we uh, will be back next week with uh, a first watch of the original Halloween from, oh God, what year? Is that 78? I think so. Yeah, 78. Um, so the John Carpenter's Halloween. And then in two weeks, uh, we'll be back with the 1989 B-Horror movie list. Uh, as always, if you have any suggestions, uh, for a future list, uh, we have the rest of this year booked up, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll be starting anew in January with uh, a lot of new topics. So if you have any suggestions, please let us know. And, um, as always, like you can find us on Facebook and, uh, our Facebook page. You can email us at two guys, five movies at gmail.com. Other than that, I hope everybody enjoyed the episode and have a great night. Thanks for listening. Have a good night.